little nerds and nerdettes. Junior ambassadors, boys and girls of all ages. We're nerds and uh, we're pretty proud of it. You're entering the Nerd United Nations podcast. Never apologize for being nerdy. All things geek are up for grabs. Because unnerdy people never apologize for being assholes. Now, here's your ambassadors, Melissa Nicholson and Jared Boots. magical episode of the Nerd United Nations podcast. Make sure you have your wands at the ready for this one. I'm your host from the great white north of Canada, Melissa Nicholson. And with me, as always, is my co-host of the Midwest United States, Jared Boots. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Uh, the pumpkin spice lattes are, might be gone for the year, but I had my first peppermint mocha from Starbucks today. <laughs> oh, and I'm just a teensy bit jealous. God damn it. I love those. It was, it, was, Good. it was delicious. I had my first one ever today. Oh, nice. But how have you been? We've been away for a while, so how have you been? Yeah, we have been away for a little bit, have we? Um, haven't we? Um, well, I'm doing all right. I've been kept busy with with life stuff, so you know that's how it goes. But doing all right though. Yeah, doing all right. Well, given the title of today's episode, I think I've been busy, too. Yeah, I think so. Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, as you can tell by the title of the episode, uh, today we're talking about Harry Potter. Because this year, 2021, I read all seven Harry Potter books and saw all eight films. So I think it was necessary to do an episode on it. And I couldn't think of any better guest to have than... My favorite Hufflepuff in the whole wide world that's still alive because Cedric Diggory is dead. R.I.P. Please welcome back to the show, Victoria Syriac. Victoria, welcome back. Hello. I am so excited to be back. Mm -hmm. Happy to have you back. Talking about my favorite movie franchise of all time. I love it. Mm -hmm. It is so good. Books and everything are just amazing. They, they really, really are. I wish that I was a little more fresh on the books. I don't think I've read, well, I've, I started a reread, but I'm only on, uh, let's see, I think I'm on Finishing Prisoner of Azkaban. So the the other books I probably haven't read for, wow, 15 years, <laughs> just, just a little bit of time, but the movies I'm definitely fresher on, but... Mm. I'm I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I I'm very fuzzy on the on the later books, especially because like I, I recently had started a I had done a reread of 
the series, but I, I got to Order of the Phoenix, and I'm halfway through that beast of a book. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's uh, when they start to get a lot thicker, right? I think that's okay. that's when they get in the the big numbers. Yeah, the first the first four I find, especially the three, are like super quick to get through. I find, and mm. then even even Goblet of Fire is pretty easy because it's just a it's such a quick like bit of a fast paced story. So, mm-hmm. but then it's the other ones that just there's so much more. So it's just kind of. It doesn't really drag, but it just, there's a lot more to read, so it takes that a little bit longer, but, mm-hmm. yeah. But I definitely found that I was a little bit fuzzy on this, so it was, like, a lot of, okay, I gotta, like, look stuff up and refresh oh. the and watch. I actually, like, watched the last few films just to really refresh my brain a little bit more. That's <laughs> So I try to do an annual rewatch of all the films, but what happens most every year is like we power through like the first five and then after that we lose steam and tend to not get to like the last couple. So I actually just rewatched the last couple too, but they are so good. Yeah. I found, although I found it funny because like those later ones are like a little bit longer, like they're over two hours. Mm-hmm. And what was funny was I I kind of ran out of steam at like one point in the movie and I was like, okay, I'm going to come back to it. And that's just, it, it made me laugh because like I can easily, no problem, watch, you know, the four hour Zack Snyder's Justice League, no problem. Ooh. And yet I couldn't freaking get through a two hour movie. Like what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> But All depends on where your heart's at, right? I think for me that would be a little bit swapped. Although I love, I love Zack Snyder's Justice League, but yeah, I'd still have to flip. A mood. It's a, you have to be in the mood for, it, especially the like the last few Harry Potter films because they are that little bit darker. Yeah, and and very dark on the screen. If you're trying to watch them during the day, you can barely see it because it's like black on black on black with a little sparkle. Yeah, yeah I definitely found that. <laughs> but anyway, enough enough on our, on our thoughts because we know we we love Harry Potter and everything. The focus is on Mr. Jared because he's a newbie into this whole world. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to know, Jared, your kind of short origin story of getting into the world of Harry Potter. Well, first, I want to thank you guys for having me on the Puff and Claw podcast. (laughs) You guys were going for a minute there. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Puff and who's Claw? (laughs) Well, you're the Hufflepuff and she's the Ravenclaw, so... Yeah, I just connected that after it came out of my mouth and I was like, oh, duh. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) I only know two Ravenclaws. That's Melissa and your daughter. Or the only two Ravenclaws I know. Yep. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, my history with Harry Potter... uh, I've always been aware of Harry Potter... But just uh, 
it was just something I never got into because uh, see the first book came out I think in the states in 1998 so I was about 14 times so I was a little uh, I wasn't as loud and proud with my nerdiness back then as I am now so flash forward 20 years later I'm a lot more loud and proud about being the nerd that I am today. If I wasn't much of a reader back in the middle school, high school ages either, I was more just reading my comic strip books like my Calvin and Hobbes and my Foxtrot books. That's really all I wanted to do and more focus on trying to fit in and want the popular kids to like me. So, and then when the films came around at the same time, I was in high school when the first film came out. Oh, yeah, I was in high school when the first film came out. So, Plus, if you guys are listening to this on the day the episode comes out, we are releasing this episode on the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone being released in the United States. Um, yeah, it was always something I was just aware of. It just didn't, maybe because I was a little bit older, like mid to late teens, I just maybe didn't feel like it was my thing. Maybe I just missed the window. Maybe I thought it was more of a kid thing. But I see how it's transcended or transist, uh, transitioned. Sorry, words are hard. Um, <laughs> it's transitioned into uh, much like Nightmare Before Christmas and Hocus Pocus, how kids that grew up in that generation are still embracing it as adults. So maybe I was wrong and that whole time. And, oh, okay, it's just kid stuff. I'm too old to get into that stuff. So that's how it was. And then... I always say I have this joking feud with Harry Potter, too, because they tore down the Jaws ride at Universal Studios to build Diagon Alley before I got a chance to ride Jaws. So I've always had a joking beef with Harry Potter. <laughs> I, mean, I rode both rides, and I have to say Harry Potter wins. <laughs> Harry Potter is better than Jaws any day. Oh, yes, it is. Even at that. Okay, we'll we'll make sure to schedule an episode on how you two are wrong. Yeah. And I'll bring oh, I'll, I'll bring on Guy and Andy DeGenova to back me up. <laughs> and her and I will win that argument, won't we? Oh yeah. <laughs> I lost arm hairs from that Jaws ride. I've told you this. It burned my arm hairs off. Ow. <laughs> At least you got right to do that. I was like 12 years old. And I lost my arm hairs. Jeez. Oh, I, ro- I lost zero arm hairs on any Harry Potter ride, so. There you go. <laughs> at least you got that. At least you got that opportunity. I never did. Uh, <laughs> Unless I want to fly to Japan. <laughs> so I could I could see that, um, like being sort of that it's that window of of age, and getting into Harry Potter because it, it kind of was like it, you know it's. Like you said, it's transitioned more now into, like, you know, adults like it. And it, it's, like, for a, a for everybody thing. Um, but definitely the ones that, you know, that grew up with it, like myself, it definitely holds that nostalgia. And, you know, because, like, I, I was kind of a little bit late and, and into it. Like, the, the book came out in 98, and then I got into it around, it was uh, 2000 is when I, I randomly discovered the book. Like, I didn't know it was a thing, and go into a bookstore and see this book, Harry Potter, and I read the inside flap description of the book, and was like, this sounds really fun. And first love at first read. 
<laughs> and it kind of just went from there. So I, I had that that opportunity, that window of, you know, right time, right moment to, you know, get into the books and then obviously follow along throughout. So I could I could see how for you, you like you were that little bit older. So it might not be something that was like, oh, that's kind of a like, you know, babyish or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Especially when you start out in the beginning and they literally are like 10 year old babies or. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. It, it, I, yeah. So what's I, your... gonna say, I was the same age as you. So I, I lived in New York when this had come out and I had a good friend who was a big Potterhead and she had read the first book and then the first movie came out and she, um, got me to see it. Well, no, it was the second movie was coming out. So she got me to watch the first movie. And then after I watched the first movie, I became obsessed. And then I read all the books that were out at that point. And I can't even remember how many were out and then went to see the second movie, like on the day it premiered. And then after that, every single movie, every single book, like I was there on release day, I wasn't dressing up because I was still like, I was probably, well, I was 21 when I first read the first book and saw the first movie. And I still wasn't quite that comfortable with being nerdy at that point, but I was there for every book and every movie. I didn't dress up. Had I had it been now, I probably would have dressed up, but it's just the excitement when because there was so much buzz on the news and the TV and everybody was talking about when they were getting close to releasing a new movie and waiting in line and staying up late. And I remember the last book was what, like 900 some pages, maybe it's a thousand pages. I don't even know. And mm -hmm. I read that thing. I, it, I read it over Christmas break as I was in college, but I didn't have any school at that point. And I think I finished it in two and a half days. I did not leave the couch. Like I got up, I ate and I was back on the couch and I just read the whole thing. And it was just like probably the most exciting book I've ever read in my entire life. Mm. Nothing will top it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, a, when a book is that good, the, it's easy to get through in, in a couple days like that. Even, even a massive book, it's like, it's really good. Especially mm -hmm. the Harry Potter ones, like you easily get through those. Yeah. And I've read those books over and over again. Like, and even like, like I even had like my mom, like she would even read them to me too. Like it was both things where I would yeah. read them or she'd read them to me. Like it was just a really cool, you know, experience with the books and, Basically, I was like, okay, I read the book, watch the movie, read the book, watch the movie. And yeah. it was just kind of that pattern throughout. So, yeah. But Jared, what's your thoughts on the first book? And well, actually, let's just start with the first book um, and not the movie just yet. But what's your thoughts on the book? Well, I have to say, I... I, get, I have to put this disclaimer out there now. Of the seven books, I did six of them on an audio book because uh, I think you both can vouch of my uh, the severity of my schedule, <laughs> uh, mm. March through September. <laughs> so mm. um, I ended up having, I had to do a little quick backstory here. I uh, ended up getting a library card this past year for the first time in like 20 fucking years. 
because I have no internet, so I need to get free. I need to get free internet wherever I can. And the local library by my apartment has internet, so I got a library card. Like, hey, I'll start checking out books. And I had a road trip coming up to Michigan, so I'm like, you know what? Why not? I'll get the Harry Potter books. I'll check those out, see what they're all about. Maybe I'm missing out on something. So, um, I think it's safe to say if I finish the all seven books, I said to say, I think I really enjoyed um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, well, full disclosure, off air, most and I had a, we were doing a little Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, back and forth, duck season, wabbit season about what to call the first book. Because down here in the States, it's called the Sorcerer's Stone. Everywhere else, it's called the Philosopher's Stone. So this is already going to be a long episode already without this debate. So Melissa and I agreed off air to call it the first book in the first film, Harry Potter and the Cool Rock. <laughs> okay. The cool rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very fitting. Yeah. When, when Jerry told me that, I thought that was just hilarious. I was like, okay, I'm I'm cool with that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I very much enjoyed Harry Potter and the Cool Rock, and. I think I could tell I was really getting into it because, like, disc one, we're getting, we get introduced to the Dursleys, and I text my friend Jasmine, and I'm like, am I supposed to hate the Dursleys as much yeah. as I'm supposed to? Because these people are awful. Like, I've never had that kind of vitriol for a character at all. Like, I've read Chris, John uh, Stephen King's Christine for the first time earlier this year, too. I'm like... Even the buddies that pick on Arnie or how Arnie transformed that book, I don't have that kind of dislike for them. But like half a disc into the first disc of uh, Harry Potter and the Cool Rock, I'm like, these Dursleys suck, man. Like these people <laughs> suck, man. <laughs> I believe Victoria, you yourself, along with my friend Desmond, also, oh, they get their comeuppance. They get their comeuppance. <laughs> uh, oh, how good like it is. <laughs> Not to my liking, I, uh, I think they deserve it, at least. But, um, yeah, so I think it's what really pulled me in was my dislike for the Dursleys right off the bat. And I do remember at the end of the book, by the time I got to the last disc, I remember thinking to myself, uh, I'm going to be jumping all over the place because the, the first three or four books are a little vague in my head because I finished them in the spring and early summer before I had to take a break from him. Um, but uh, I remember making the joke to my friends that, wow, Dumbledore really hosed over the Slytherins to the House Cup in the final chapter there. <laughs> he yeah. just granted Gryffindor 100, 160 points or uh, 170 points <laughs> at the final feast. Yeah. Sent him from last place to first place. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Um to avoid a bad pun, I really enjoyed the magic and the whimsy of the first book because it really draw it really pulls you in. And even though some of my favorite characters weren't quite introduced in this first book, it really pulled me in. And some the great how great the characters are. I really love Hagrid. He's one of my he was one of my first favorite characters. Um, Is it just your affinity for bearded men? How, <laughs> we know how you love the beard. <laughs> game recognizes game, Playa. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
I would ha- I could go out and find a fur coat and a polka dot tie. I could definitely be Hagrid. <laughs> my hair my hair is a little bit thinner, but I could pull it off. <laughs> Probably could. Hashtag goals. Hey, Dumbledore's got a dope ass beard too, so. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, uh, I think J.K. Rowling really did a great job of pulling me in. I'm, I'm I apologize because I'm not remembering much of the the tale off the top of my head right now. But um, even though I read this, I reread the Spark Notes the other day too uh, of the first book to refresh my memory. Um, yeah, that first book just pulled me in. And I go, I okay, I'm gonna finish the rest of this series, win, lose, or draw. Not like I had anything to lose at that point, but I was actively. Okay, I go. Oh, I can't wait to get to the next one. I can't wait to get to the next one, which is very rare for me because I have books that are piling up. I have comics that are piling up. Very rarely, man. So okay, I can't wait to get to the next one. Hmm. So hmm. that was my experience with the first book. Um, what was your take on Quidditch? Was it something you think you'd go watch in real life if if there was Quidditch in real life? I would say I would definitely watch Quidditch in real life. I'd even watch it on TV because I think the key to enjoying sports on television is that there has to be something exciting going on. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I grew up watching or I grew up playing baseball my whole life and playing football, but I cannot watch football and baseball on TV because it's so boring. Hockey is the only sport I can stay awake watching on TV because there's so much action going on. <laughs> I think with Quidditch, I, I think with Quidditch, I could probably watch it on TV because there's always something going on, especially too when you got the the, uh, the bludgers flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact and I could that definitely get by watching on TV, I think. In a way, it is because if you, I was trying to think like which sport is it closest to, and I would say probably hockey because physical aggression is allowed. You can, you know, do all there. The rule book has what is it? Seven hundred and twenty-two, um, seven hundred twenty-two ways to die, I think. But like the actual rules, there's hardly any. <laughs> and uh, but fighting's allowed, so I think hockey is probably the closest in that because you can't really fight in any of the other sports that right so i'd call that the closest Hmm. which which position do you think you'd play i'd probably have to be a beater (laughs) (laughs) so i don't think i have it this would be like I have the respect for the seekers just because there's so much shit going on around them <laughs> that they have to keep their eyes <laughs> focused on a, well, and talk about the size pressure. of a golf ball. Yeah. Well, yeah. talk about the pressure, you know, like they whoever the game goes until the snitch is caught. So they've said, what did they say? The longest game went on for was it days or weeks? the longest game ever um but you have to one of the seekers has to catch the snitch in order to win mm-hmm. so that's that, a lot of pressure i wouldn't want that <laughs> i think that would be the that's probably the toughest one it would be being the seeker especially if you know the golf ball size thing that's got wings mm-hmm. that's super quickly it's like 
It's I wicked know. fast. <laughs> <laughs> being, you know, being the goalkeeper, that's nothing. That's like easy. But <laughs> seeker, like, oh no, I, I would defer. I would defer saying the goalkeeper would be hard because they're they're defending three hoops. Yeah, this is true. That's true. But, I would say that would be the spot that I would get because I always sucked at any sport I ever played. I have zero athletic ability whatsoever. So I always got stuck in like goalie or catcher because I just am no game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm kind of the same way. I was like and I, I suck at being goaltender, honestly. <laughs> so <laughs> I can admire those who actually have that skill. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I wasn't any good. They just stuck me there because I only played when they're little and, you know, everyone has to play. So, like, we have to let her play. <laughs> well, if it was just one hoop, I probably could be a, a, a keeper just because the quaffle is good enough, big enough to keep, like, a good concentration on. Mm-hmm. But the three hoops, that's what, that's where you lose me. But the quaffle is, <laughs> like, a large enough object I could block it if I had to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, three hoops, that's a, that's a challenge for sure. <laughs> While flying, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved one of my, well, my favorite, one of my favorite movie parts in that first movie is when Harry first gets his broomstick and you can just see that he is just 100% a natural. Because, well, I guess our, we're still on the book, and I don't remember the book as well, but I think that was the same in both the book and the movie. But just the minute he grabs his broomstick and he just hovers in the air, and then after that he witnesses some bullying with Malfoy trying to steal from Neville, and he grabs his broom and he takes off. And I just, I, I love that scene. And Hermione's like, Harry, don't you? What an idiot. And then he zooms off, and it's just, that, that was one of my favorite parts of the first movie. I love that part. Mm-hmm. You can you can very much see that like he's he's gonna be that the natural in in yeah. like he's gonna be he, he natural in in flying and everything, but also just I think in in the environment too. Like he he's gonna you know kind of fit right into that. Like he's not gonna sort of be you know. Um, not fit in you know what I mean like he's yeah very much into it be the good guy too that's like there to help you know there to help people that are picked on so that kind of shows through right away Mm -hmm. and I wonder like you know when 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 Hagrid comes to, to finally finds the the Dursleys after they've they've gone to that tower thing in the middle of the freaking ocean or <laughs> and he comes in and he you know he he tells harry that that he's a wizard and and i mean like harry's surprised but do you think you know he was he was quick to kind of be like uh, he's like i'm a what and then, <laughs> okay come on say it right i'm a what <laughs> <laughs> you're a wizard harry there's so many memes on that one <laughs> oh, no. He does. He he asks, I'm a what? And then he gets it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did have a theory after reading the book and watching the first film uh, about the snake at the zoo that he talks to and oh. releases. I don't. I was wondering, was that Nagini he set free? 
Uh, or, or did no. Voldemort always have Nagini? Yeah, I said Nagini. I think this one was just sort of that was what was there at the at the zoo. Because they I'll both look, they look, but they both look very similar. In, in the film, at least, they both look very similar. The same mm-hmm. type of snake. Yeah. I, do I wonder like, Thought I wonder he had Nagini as like a baby. I thought she was a female Maledictus. Cursed to transform into a snake. Oh, so she actually is not a snake. Okay, she had been trapped in snake form and belonged to Lord Voldemort. Right. Yeah. Her master had been killed in 1994. I totally didn't Google that, by the way. (laughs) That just came right off the top of my head. Yeah, definitely. You didn't hear the keyboard clacking or nothing. No. (laughs) I'm a loud typer. Yeah, I, don't worry. I have more theories later on. <laughs> I knew there was something to that though. Once you said that, so. Well, it's, after watching the first film, I go that snake looks awful sim- similar to Nagini. Mm-hmm. Like, but maybe I wonder, like, did he let Nagini free from the zoo? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a, a question around that one. Um, and like, it, it's a bit of a change from um, like the the book to the film. Where, like, the Dursleys, because it's around uh, Dudley's birthday, and they... Me, in the book, Duddy Kins? Duddy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, the, like, the Dursleys, they invite, they invite a friend of, of Dudley's to the zoo in the book. And he, Harry gets treated pretty well in that, in that time period. Like, he's... You know, he gets, uh, like, ice lollies and all this stuff and whatever. Like, he's, you know, treated very well. And in the film, they, obviously, they still go to the zoo, but sort of Harry's sort of left to sort of do what he wants, and they're off doing whatever they're doing. So what do you think of that change from, like, book to movie? Well, I'm sure this topic will get brought up a few times this- episode um the main thing growing up or being an avid comic book reader that i am and watching all these comic book films i've i've grown quite accustomed to um having to develop films from source material for general audiences Mm -hmm. so sometimes the fat's gonna have to get trimmed especially when want to so, because you have to make this so everybody who hasn't read the book will understand what's going on. So that's one of the things I you don't really miss because it doesn't really seem that necessary. Because you still get the gist that he lives with the Dursleys and he's miserable living with them because they don't treat him very well. Because mm-hmm. they, uh, I really think that they, especially in the first film, Christopher Columbus, I think did a great job. Well, he directed the first two films. He did such a great job capturing the. The wonder and the whimsy of the first two films from the books. So I think he, I think he trimmed the right amounts. He, I think he cut the right things out of the first book and the second book to get the point across in, in both of them. So mm-hmm. I don't really miss uh, Big D's friend not being at the zoo with him. So that was like one thing I thought about my head. Like, yeah, didn't he bring a friend with him? But it's a character that's not going to pay off later in the franchise anyway, books and films. So I honestly didn't really miss it not being in there. And you still get the point across that we discover that Harry is a parcel tongue. 
or parcel mouth. I think they say both types throughout the franchise. So mm-hmm. you still get the point across that Harry's like starting to discover who he is before he finds out what he is. So yeah. I I think I think cutting out Dudley bringing a friend and him getting treated nicely for a very small fraction of the book. Um, I think it doesn't bother me at all that it didn't make it to the film because you still get the point. They're trying to set the set the tone that you aren't supposed to like the Dursleys. So yeah. I think it's a a healthy. I think it was a healthy cut that didn't hurt the film or anything at all. It didn't hurt the narrative at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's it's I, I kind of like that. You know, especially in the in the film, like they do, they they have that healthy cut of stuff that's just. You know, it, you remember it from the book, but then you also, you know, don't mind the difference in the film because it just, it makes, you know, a little more sense of, like you said, like capturing the, you know, how just awful the Dursleys are. And <laughs> you just immediately do not like them. Um, so I, I think it captures that, you know, just that even more that, you know, and, and yeah, having, if they, if they did that in the film, it, I mean, it would be fine, but. You know, it, it wouldn't really pay off. So I could see why it was it was changed. I mean, it's not even that big of a of a change, really. So, um, but I just thought, it was, you know, kind of interesting because you probably even remember that. And it's, okay, um, you know, different change. So, yeah. Yeah, I was a little worried going into this because the first few books were so fuzzy in my memory. Mm-hmm. Especially when I started watching the films, I'm like, I don't remember enough about the movie to tell what was right or wrong and then mm-hmm. i really think the first film was probably one of the most accurate mm-hmm. adaptations too because i really don't think they left that much out and most i know you and i talked off air earlier this week about like i don't know the first few books i don't know the books well enough to mm-hmm. tell when minor things were cut and what weren't cut like i when well, no, some of the later films i was able to tell like yeah okay yeah they this is all different this is all different but sorry before we go oh no i was just thinking one difference that i do remember that i would have liked to have seen a little bit more on the movie and it probably would have only taken like two minutes was um hagrid's dragon egg in the movie they bring out his dragon egg and it's it's really short but in the book he actually grows to quite a big size and ends up being so large that they have to, you know, go about this elaborate measure to sneak him out and bring him to the top of the tower to, or what is it, the top of the astronomy tower, and then they get Bill to come in and take him. But in the in the movie, it's just like, oh, he's a little baby, and he gets caught right away, and then he just has to go live in Romania. So, But I think they, they told the story about how he got bigger and bigger, and he kept, like, accidentally hurting Hagrid, but it just showed, like, how much Hagrid loves animals and, and well, creatures, really, and that he just didn't even care. He had a couple of, like, big cuts and things like that, and Hagrid says, oh, it's just a scratch. It's nothing big. But I would have I would have liked to have seen a bigger version of, oh, now I can't remember the dragon's egg. The, what's his name? Oh, I know his Norbert. name. Norbert. Yes, Norbert. He knows his mummy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I do remember that being a little bit bigger now that you say something. But I think they did well with the films. I think it goes back to Christopher Columbus and uh, the guy that adapted the the screenplay. I think they 
because Norbert doesn't play such a huge part in the overall plot, so I think they did a good enough job of just moving it along. Like, yeah, well, it could have they could have cut Norbert out completely, but yeah. it was a good chance for them to like name drop Charlie Weasley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll get to that later. My beef with uh, Charlie Weasley in the <laughs> films, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll wait till I get to Bill Weasley. <laughs> um, uh, um, I think that you see a good point. They, they should have drawn out a little bit more, but I think they did a good enough job. And I think plus with this first film, you're introducing so much. You're setting up the whole world at this point, so I think I don't think it really hurt it to shrink down Norbert's uh, plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It didn't hurt it. I'm just saying, personal, I would have liked to seen a bigger dragon because. The dragons are such a cool, magical part of this whole thing. So that's just my personal opinion. While we're on the topic of the film, do you want me to give me my thoughts on the film, or do you still have more questions about the book, Melissa? Uh, We can get on to your thoughts on the film, for sure. Well, I really loved it, and there's some things I did notice. Like, there's, you'll notice throughout these films, like, it's just little things that really amuse me when it comes to these things and like one of the first things that really amused me watching this was during the sorting hat ceremony and the weird, you guys notice the weird clap that Dumbledore does when Hermione gets picked to Gryffindor mm-hmm. where he, he holds out his left hand and just taps the right hand to the bottom of his left hand as a clap. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that amused me so much, but it did. I just started laughing at that. I don't know why <laughs> but it was in a good way. It was in a good way because it just entertained me so much that just that little little tick that Dumbledore does it just caught my eye. Um, and uh, something that somebody pointed out to me, one of my friends, uh, Shauna, pointed out, I kind of caught on to right away. Well, it was when uh, John Cleese first peeked his head through the table. Okay, oh, John Cleese is peeved. This is good casting and end up being nearly headless Nick mm-hmm. and you get that halfway through the film like oh right Peeves is not in this film at all and I was thinking I was telling Melissa off air I go once I looked up who who was supposed to play Peeves I got really sad because Rick Mayall uh, most known for playing Drop Dead Fred was supposed to be Peeves oh, and that wow. made me really sad because he would have been a good Peeves mm-hmm. I, I told did Melissa, hear- about that part that like when they looked at, cause they shot him and everything, but when they got done and they looked at how he looked on film, however they had done it, they said it just looked awful. So they cut him out completely. That's just sad. I told Melissa, he went on later to call the film shit. I <laughs> think <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I love about this film or the whole film franchise as a whole is how perfect all the casting was. Mm-hmm. Like Severus Snape, Alan Rickman, Severus Snape, like hands down, perfect casting. John Cleese is nearly headless. Nick is great. Um, the kids in general, uh, watching all of them grow up, like every there was not a single bad casting choice throughout this entire film that I didn't disagree with. Like even the Dursleys. Like, that's how I can't say that's how I imagined it when I read the book, but they didn't quite match up to how I imagined them by hearing Jim Dale do their voices. But 
when I started my rewatch of the first three films earlier this week, I grew more comfortable with them because I I, block, I blocked out Jim Dale's interpretation out of my head, and I really got a lot more comfortable with some of the casting. Because I really thought like, like uh, and I was really and there's a lot of who's who actors um, from these films, like the guy that played Uncle Vernon. Uh, I saw him in Pirates of the Caribbean 4. He plays King George. I'm like, this guy looks familiar. And as soon as I finished every film, I went to IMDb and started looking half these people up. Like, oh, I know this one. Oh, from this, from this, from this. Oh, that's amazing. Like, that's where they look all familiar. And um, I think they only cast like one or two Americans in all the films. And one of them I laughed at. And I knew, I kind of identified him right away. And it was a uh, grip hook, the, the goblin. It was Vern Troyer, mini me. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> well, I I knew Warwick Davis was P- Professor Flitwick, and I knew he was one of the goblins. Mm. But he also, but he also does one of the voice. He also does the voice of Grip Hook uh, uh, for Vern Troyer too. But um, one thing I did notice: what was what what is maybe you guys can shed some light on this. What is the deal with um, Professor Flitwick looking different in this film as opposed to the rest of the films? Because he's got like the long white hair and mustache and stuff in this film. In the rest of the films he's in, he's got the short black hair and the glasses and the little mustache. I don't think I really noticed that. (laughs) I don't know. It it might have been just... Like maybe just a character style choice that they made. I don't know, because um, it 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 is kind of it is noticeable. He's very much he he looks like that wizened wizard thing, and then he's not so much sort of after that. And I don't know. I don't really know why that that was a change, but um, I mean it, it's not it's not the biggest of deals really, but it it is. Yeah, I don't know why they couldn't have kept like what you see him as at first. Well, I definitely got I actually kind of like the form he takes later on because and I'm saying this as a compliment. I I got uh with his first rendition of Professor Flitwick that we get in this film. I could definitely tell he was doing his voice that he uses in the Leprechaun films. So I definitely got shades of his leprechaun in that first one. So maybe I'm, in a way I'm kind of glad he didn't use that voice. I think he used it for Grip Hook too um, in this film. He just used his typical leprechaun voice. But um, I actually kind of prefer his second appearance in the film. I like his later appearances in the film. I like his look then because it just – because it also matches the game we all play, the Harry Potter puzzles and spells game. So it's a, it matches his appearance in that game as well. Mm-hmm. So when I first saw him in the film, the first film, I'm like, holy crap! Like that's Professor Flitwick. Like he looks different in the game. <laughs> yeah. So that was just one thing that caught my mind. Maybe I thought at first, well, maybe he's just a different professor, and Flitwick comes in later. But uh. So I don't think they address him as Flitwick at all in the film. I think I know Harry just says Professor. We need a new. Uh, we're gonna need a new uh, a feather when <laughs> Seamus Finnegan blows up his feather. <laughs> <laughs> that was just one thought that came to my mind about that. Very interesting catch. I 
I never quite realized that. So kudos mm -hmm. to you. Thank you. I do, I do have a fun film fact um, about the first film. Um, I actually learned it from uh, ID10T with Chris Hardwick when he interviewed Chris Columbus. And they obviously they talked Harry Potter in the films and and one of the things that that um, I think it was it was a question that Chris Hardwick had asked him it was like sort of like a um, a moment that you were you were happy with or you know what you were most happy with or something along those lines and he had Chris Columbus brought up that in the, in the f in first film. Um, when they're and all this, the first years are going into the great hall and we see uh, like, you know, the, the clouded sky and everything. And we also see candles. Well, all those candles are real. That was a practical effect. Yeah. And they did it in, I think it was, they had to do it in, in two shots and that was it because obviously the, the candle flame was burning the string that it was hanging on. That's one of the things I loved about these, the first two films at least, was the use of practical effects. Yeah, they use a lot of CG, and I, I was talking to a salesman at work today. Like, the CG looks really good for being a 20 year old film. But like, the flying on the brooms looks a little rough, and there's a few scenes with the troll that look a little rough. But other than that, it, and oh, I'd say at the end of the film too, with uh, Voldemort's head being out of the, out of the back of Coral's head, <laughs> it looked it. It looked a little spotty, but it looked good for like 2000, 2001 era. But mm -hmm. I did like like the close up of the troll in practical effects, or uh, in that film particularly, look look really good. I thought you were going to say one of his highlights of the film was the fact that his daughter is in the film, in the first film. Now that I, I didn't know. Actually, yeah, his daughter is Susan Bones, who gets placed in a Hufflepuff right before, is it Hermione? gets placed or yeah, you see the girl the girl from Hufflepuff that gets yeah. sorted out. That's uh Chris Columbus's daughter who like kind of persuaded him to do the films. No. And I believe all four of his kids are in Chamber of Secrets. Uh the one daughter's back is Susan Bones and I can't remember who the other uh kids were. I think one of his I think his youngest daughter was in the bookstore and one of his boys was in the background in the library. Yeah, like uh, uh, all four of his kids are in Chamber of Secrets. That's cool. But yeah, you think um, obviously last question about it. Um, you think they they really? I mean, you kind of you kind of already alluded to it too that it they really brought the book to life. Um, well, they really did, and I think a, a key factor to that was the the score from John Williams too because hands down John Williams is one of the best living composers around absolutely and he's done so many huge films like the Star Wars franchise Jaws and um, Jurassic Park <laughs> he's done he's done so many great scores and he adds this to his list I think he's only if I read correctly he does the first film by him he does the first film by himself I think he only did part of the second score and then he did the score for prisoner of azkaban because mm -hmm. i think he was he had he was busy so he couldn't do uh all the score for chamber of secrets but i really think because you could tell chris columbus had a real passion with this film 
And yeah. from what I heard on an IMDb, he like rewrote the script for free. Cause that's how bad, like to show Warner, to show Warner Bros. how badly he wanted to do this film. He beat out like 50 other directors, including Spielberg mm-hmm. for this yeah. job. And I think you take that kind of passion mixed with John Williams score and it just sweeps you up into it. Absolutely. It, it very much like the, the score just, it, it, it adds to the, the whole mood of the, of the film. Like it just, it, you know, the music reflects each moment and so well, it just encapsulates the whole thing of what the characters are feeling, what the environment's like. It just, it's, so well done and and he was and actually like seeing the the harry potter films was my first introduction to john williams as a composer so obviously like you know i i love the 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 soundtrack of it like i i absolutely loved it i actually had it on on cd because and i listened to it quite a lot because it was just so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) i would like use it to study yeah it's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the movies would be nearly as good without it. It just, it, it's so magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many times is that word going to get thrown around in this episode? I go with a thousand. <laughs> it'll be up there. Oh. Yeah. It'll, it'll be a lot for sure. And then uh, going back to like the practical effects of the movie, I did really love the uh, parts of the chess the wizard chess scene that were practical effects i really did love that too mm-hmm. what's your what would you say is your favorite moment in the film favorite moment or scene well the fat kid in me says the awesome feasts they have for thanksgiving for <laughs> halloween and for for the first day the grand mm-hmm. feast but uh, I would probably say I like the wizard chess scene when they're going to get uh, when they're going down to protect the sorcerer's stone or the cool rock. Cool. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I definitely that was that was one of my favorite scenes too. It's just so cool to see all the you know the chess pieces move and you know as they you know, order them to different spots on the board, and it's just such a cool uh, scene for sure. But my my favorite would be when, when they're dealing with the the troll, like, and the the you know the wand goes up his nose, and they're, then they take it out, and it's like, ooh, troll bogeys. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that one. <laughs> That was a fun one. I kind of want, I don't know that I could pick one, but one of my favorites. I love when they're making their way to the castle for the first time. And when you see them rowing their boats across and the music comes up and you see the castle and the lights, like it just seemed, it was, it was just phenomenal. It was amazing. Mm. And there, there's the, the word again. Just wait. <laughs> It really is magical. Yeah, it, it <laughs> was. It, it was absolutely. Them coming across the, the lake and everything, like, it just, it you knew just, mm-hmm. you know, what you're getting yourself into. Like, this is going to be a completely yeah. 
you know, incredible world that you're getting into. And yep. you know, I definitely remember having that that sense of wonder and and just like wow, especially seeing it on the big screen was just incredible. Like yeah. that that scene just yeah. It, it really drew me in for for the film for sure. And I also have to say, so I, I was very fortunate that I was able to go to Universal Studios last year and see it for the first time. But when I walked through the park and turned the corner and I could finally like see the Hogwarts castle there, not going to lie, total waterworks. I was glad sunglasses were required because I was just like, it's such a magical moment. I've waited 20 years for this. Like it, it was just breathtaking to see in person, too. Even though it wasn't the real one, but still to me, it's the United States real one. And it, it was just, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You get to see, a, you know, a recreation of it. And it's just, it's it's just an, an incredible castle and such a, you know, obviously a, a huge part of, you know, the Harry Potter world. And. It, it yeah and you have that you know the nostalgia of it too and so yeah it's just all those things and and I if if I ever you know went there and I and I saw it I'd probably cry too like <laughs> <laughs> you made me feel better <laughs> well and because they have the you know the music is playing on loop the Harry Potter, you know, the theme song, Hedwig's theme is on loop and it's really loud. So when you turn and you see it and you hear the music, I mean, you're literally, you're there, you're in the middle of it. You're part, the movie comes to life and it's, it's everything. You should go someday. I swear. I'm, I'm already planning my next trip. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. It's not cheap, but no. I got two kidneys. I, I really only need one, so. <laughs> yeah, so any other, um, Jared, specifically, do you have any final thoughts on book and film? I can definitely call the first book and film cocaine because it got me hooked and I wanted more. <laughs> It's just that that good and that fun and it's yeah it, it's just tons of fun. So now we move on to a little bit of a little bit of a tonal change with Chamber of Secrets. Um, very much you know lighthearted, um, a few dark moments, but mostly lighthearted and and fun and a little bit wholesome in the first one and then now we go on to chamber secrets which is that little bit of a darker story and definitely you know as you get sort of halfway into the film it very much hits that darker tone and um what did you think of this book jared and that tonal change well i had i told you i've told you off mic when i was i actually had to physically read half-blood prince because i couldn't find it a audiobook copy of it everywhere I went until I went to go pick up Deathly Hollows and the library had two fucking copies of Half-Blood Prince <laughs> but the reason why I'm talking about that now is because I told Melissa the farther I got into Half-Blood Prince because they called back the Chamber of Secrets so often I realized how much I had forgotten 
about uh, Chamber of Secrets, listen to it on audiobook. Because it was so long before, in between those two books that I've read them, and it's or listened to them, I guess. Mm. And I was talking most like maybe it's because there was less going on in those books. The in that book that I don't remember, maybe that's why I don't remember it as much. But actually, as I watched the film, it started to spark more memories of the book um, in my head, and um, so I was I was slowly starting to remember Tom Riddle and Jenny and the diary and all that stuff. And I start to remember, I do remember finding, and I think I talked about this with Victoria at, at Tug practice, finding Dobby to be very annoying in the <laughs> when, he's, when he's first met in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put a pin in, in a couple books about my feelings about Dobby. Oh, Victoria, um, I'll be questioning you on that one. But, uh, <laughs> I think this is where my so I, I knew where right away from like the first book and film that my favorite my favorite characters were Fred and George because I just <laughs> love the prankster aspect of them. But I think this book is where my love blossomed from just Fred and George to the whole Weasley family because they had so many great moments. I I wanted to join the Weasley family so much after going through some of these books, mm-hmm. and I do. Remember Remember off the top of my head, like when Lockhart, Gildor Lockhart was introduced, I'm like first thoughts of my, much like how, how I had an instant dislike for the Dursleys, first thing that popped up my head when the very instant Gildor Lockhart was introduced, I'm like, oh, this guy sounds like a massive tool and fraud. <laughs> like even yeah. before, even before that reveal was made that he was a fraud, I'm like, I called it right away. I'm like, this guy's a total fake. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was actually, I was actually going to ask you about that. Like, did you get that sense of? Him being kind of sus. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> I don't know if it was in Jim Dale's performance or just how how he's described in the book. I'm like, that this dude's total fake right off the bat. <laughs> like there's some about like I, I like go back to the first book. In the first book, I had no idea that it was the Quirrell's behind it because you hardly hear from Quirrell in the book until it's revealed. I think it's a little more obvious in the film that Quirrell's up to something because they show him a lot more on screen and they they show him being a little suspicious. Yeah. But with Gilderoy Lockhart, like as soon as he's introduced, I'm like yeah, there's something about this dude. This dude's like a total faker, or maybe it's how Jim Dale performs. I'm like, oh, this guy's a massive tool. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. something's up with this guy. I could I could see that a mile away. I could I could smell it on him. Um. <laughs> uh, I do remember one of my favorite scenes from the book has to be when Fred and George and Ron come and save Harry from uh, the Dursleys in the flying car. Mm-hmm. And uh, the spoiler alert for future books and films when we get down to that part, but it, it, that was one thing I really missed from the later films was how Harry got away from the Dursleys' house. Um, I really didn't miss that aspect of the films, but I think this is probably one of my favorite ones is how when they come to save him in the flying car. Mm. It's moments like that why Fred and George were my favorite characters throughout. Well, if you break down the whole Weasley family or the Weasley family in general, like probably my favorite characters throughout the whole franchise. But at the top of it, it's probably Fred and George just because I love I love how. I just love the prankster aspect of them. It's they do not give a shit. <laughs> they don't, they're just gonna be them, man. They, 
They make no bones about it. No matter if Hollister's situation, they are joking throughout the whole thing. They do not take shit seriously, which is sometimes I, I think I said it before, like sometimes the best way to get through dark moments in our life is to laugh at shit or make fun of shit. You really shouldn't laugh or make fun of. And I think Fred and George definitely live up to that. Like no matter how dire the situation, they just stay the same way. They are their very merry pranks yourselves, no matter how dark the situation is in this universe. And I admire the hell out of that. That's what I try to aspire to. Yeah, for sure. Even, you know, and we won't touch on it just yet, but just even when you see them later on, even like they're still, you know, even, even the one of them makes, makes a joke like, and it's not, you know, the most positive of times. So yeah, I, I, lo- I absolutely love them too. They, they were, they were also one of my, my favorite characters, like just how, how they just love to get into mischief and, you know, having fun and having a laugh and even, you know, just lightening up situations and, you know, recognizing that, yeah, it's, it's, you know, they, they could recognize that, yeah, a darker moment, but still being a light, you know, keeping things light, keeping things kind of fun. And, you know, they, they're just really great. <laughs> I really enjoy them too. I love when we see, well, in the book and the movie, but see their house for the first time. It's our first glimpse into what living in a magical household is actually like and like the pots and pans washing themselves and, you know, all the like, what is it? It's something that lives in the attic. It's not a gnome. The gnomes are out in the garden. They do a denoming. But what's up in the attic? They have a ghost up in the attic. Okay. Do they call it a poltergeist? I can't remember. Yeah, they have, yeah, it's a poltergeist. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I just loved, and the shape of the house too. Like, there's no way that that would actually stand up without falling over the way that it's shaped. It you so know. Cool. And you her know clock, I, the mom's clock. What I idolize most about that house is the fact that being an apartment dweller for so many years of my life is their house is out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. I, I admire. That the hell out of that like i want that that's house goals middle of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure because doesn't isn't ron's bedroom i the book goes more into detail i think his bedroom is like on the fifth floor and they they talk about just as they added more kids they just plopped another floor on top and pretty much yeah yeah and i love how like you know it's described in the book and and kind of, I didn't really know how to really picture it in my mind, but it, it definitely in the film, it brought it to life. And I just, I love their house. Like, it's just so cozy. That's the first thing I think of. It's just, it's so cozy and warm and just like a wonderful, be a wonderful place to be. Like, I, I really love like the, when, you know, they're initially going into the, into the borough and it's just, you know, like you see, yeah, the pots are doing dishes. There's knitting happening. Like it's yeah. just all these really homey things, and yeah. it just you really get a sense of the family too and who they are, because you you haven't really met them obviously completely yet. So you really get a sense of them from their house for sure. That they're they're a warm, loving 
family. And yeah. they're, they're one of my favorite families ever. I love them, like, to the freaking like they're just so lovely. <laughs> I love when Mr. Weasley like comes in and she talks about the Mrs. Weasley talks about them flying the car to Surrey and back and he's like, Really? How did it go? <laughs> and then he gets smacked, like, Oh yeah, we're supposed to be yelling at them and parenting. But instead he's like so excited that his invention worked. <laughs> yeah. I, I That's what I love about Arthur too. Yeah. I love how he's so curious and especially about muggle items. And I love how it's portrayed in the book. What exactly is the purpose of a rubber duck? (laughs) (laughs) That cracked me up. He was so serious when he asked that question too. Yeah. (laughs) Or when he's trying to get on the subway, which that's not in that book, but God, I love when he's trying to like figure out how to get on the subway. Yeah. Yeah, he he's he's so curious and willing to learn, but then he's also kind of, you know, a little bit naive on on these things because obviously it's not something that, you know, he would always, you know, engage with. And so it's just it's so genuine how he's he's discovering these things and and figuring it out. And that's something that, you know, you kind of get a glimpse of when he, you know, when they they find out that you know they were f- using the flying car and like how he curious he is about it but you don't really i don't know i find you don't really see a lot of that like as much as you do in the book where he's asking these questions about the different items and and things mm-hmm. and really seeing that curiosity i mean you well, get he, a glimpse of it but i don't know what do you think his, his fascination for muggle artifacts is is present in the books because he's always talking about the things he does with work or how he's like checking things for port keys and all this other stuff. So I think the, I think his interest in muggle artifacts is there because doesn't he help rebuild in the later books? Doesn't he help rebuild Hagrid's bike after it gets wrecked? Yes. So, so I think his, his passion for muggle stuff is there and the muggle world is there. It's just, I think it, I think a lot of it comes through in his work aspect and then how he interacts with muggles, like when they go to the Quidditch Cup in the fourth book and all of this stuff, or how I know it's shown in the this film, but is he talking to Hermione's parents also uh, in the bookshop and in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how so. that's so looked down upon because there's such kind of a symbolism or parallel with with racism really and how they handle muggles versus you know magic witchers and wizards and how it it phases him nothing at all but that the fancy malfoys look down i just i like that that it just shows what a good person he is on top of that that he's completely accepting and open and cares nothing about whether you know witches and wizards come from magic families or not i like that and I think this is when they start getting established that they're blood traders. Yeah. Even though yeah, the Weasels are both pure blood, aren't they? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And Hermione is is a uh, mud blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. Yeah. It's. You definitely get that that start of that division of oh well you're not you weren't born into a wizarding family well you're you know you're you're nothing but it's also that you get a sense of you know, like who the who the Malfoys are, and how just awful 
Yeah, they are. Oh, don't worry. But by the time we get to book six, I got a good theory. I had a good comparison for Draco Malfoy. <laughs> I do have a few questions about him. That's that's for that's for for later because it relates more to that. Um, but yeah, it's um, but yeah. Um, uh, what do we think of um? Like Ginny being controlled by what's in the diary, and her doing all the writing and stuff. Like how that story sort of goes. From what I remember of it, it really didn't. It really didn't spark anything in me that that was going on until I got to Half Blood Prince. Like, oh yeah, she was being possessed by the diary. <laughs> so I just think my busy schedule just like forced all like the first three books out of my memory from uh from this past spring and summer but uh i like it i, I think it's a good foreshadowing what we get with uh the horcruxes later on in the series mm-hmm. so it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a total retcon at all when we get later on in the series about like the effect that these things have on other people so i think it makes perfect sense yeah, like the, especially you know the diary and how that's sort of the the main point of the of the story and it, you know finding it and realizing that there's you know something with sort of within it I guess because it's communicating and everything and and so and then it even you know it gets that callback much later when it's revealed that that was you know a Horcrux. And so, you know, the one of them was destroyed. And so I think it's kind of neat that that's still tied into later on. That it just, it wasn't just something that, you know, was there and, and to there to tell the story. And that was it. Um, I, I really like that with, with this series too, where it, it, stuff will tie in. You know, it'll, it'll make sense as it goes along. Like they'll, they'll definitely, they'll call back to, to yeah. something. And, um, you know, it's it's really nice to see that they so it's not just something wasted. Those you know? little seeds that are being planted, like when they pull the Harry just gets the, the fox brings down the sorting hat and he just pulls out the sword of Gryffindor hidden in a hat. So we hadn't really seen, you know, that magic can contain large items into small items. So that's kind of the first time you see like, you know how Hermione's bag explodes and the tents explode. So it's like he pulls out that, that sword, but also that, what is it? Dumbledore's line that help will come to those who ask for it or something. I I can't remember the exact quote, but that's the first time. To those who, who need it. Yeah. How it goes. I think you're right. then that gets changed later on in the in the in the series. That's what he found at Hogwarts by those who ask for it. Meh. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part. And I love Fox the Phoenix. He he's such a cool character. Mm. And his magic tears. Yeah. I'll take a Phoenix. I would love to have one. <laughs> Definitely very cool creatures. Uh, while we're on the subject of Fox, I think uh, transitioning into the film, I go. I think the Fox animatronic was one of my favorite things of the film because I'm, I'm a sucker for practical effects. And the fact that Fox was a, an animatronic just made my heart so happy. 
And how yeah. good it looked too, because like a, a CG fox, I don't think would have looked as good if something on a little tennis ball on a stick and have having to have Richard Harris and Daniel Radcliffe try to make eye contact with it, and get a line of sight on it. Like, for example, you watch the first Adam and the Chipmunks, Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, and David Cross and Jason Lee are making eye contact with the Chipmunks because there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. But you have something right there that they can make eye contact with. It looks so good. So you. You can tell something's there, especially when Fox is giving, uh, putting his tears on the wound from the basilisk on uh, on Harry at the end. Mm-hmm. So they they did, did they add some CGI to that? I know with, like, the basilisk, it was kind of a combination, but. Yeah. Did, yeah was much it, like, same with the trolls in the first film. Like, some of the troll was CG, some of the troll was practical. And I think some of Fox had to be. Fox flying had to be CG yeah. or or Fox burning up had to be a CG. Mm-hmm. For those that, close-up shots, it had to be practical effects. It had to be an animatronic. Yeah, for sure. I love that that mix of of you know the the practical and and CG that you know and, and it like now I can I can see it a lot more because I just I noticed. These things at the time, I had no idea. That wasn't practical versus CGI was not something that was in my brain at the time. <laughs> I had no clue. I just was loving the film for what it was, and no idea of all this stuff that now I I know and I can really admire. Um, but you know, I think even now I can get more out of it because I know. You know, you can kind of see that, and it's just really cool that it just it still works and is effective. And so, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's neat that they have that nice balance of of two of the two things. And Hedwig actually, she was a real owl that they you know would add some CGI too, but she was a real owl that they used for a lot of it. Yeah, three different owls, I believe, and uh, and. In this film too, they actually use a puppet too. When uh, when Ron and Harry are flying the car to Hogwarts, and they turn around and see the Hogwarts Express right behind them, like clearly a puppet, but it looked good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so any um, I guess we well we've kind of covered it. Any other thoughts on it? On the book, on the book or the film? Um, I haven't really touched on the film much. How about the film? Like, what are thoughts on the film itself? Well, I really think the MVP of this film. Is, I'm probably gonna screw up his last name. Rupert. Rupert Grint. Yeah. He really steals the movie for me in his performances. Like when they go to see Aragog in the forest and. <laughs> How freaked out he is, or when him and Harry drive the car into the weep, the whomping willow. Harry, like, <laughs> and I think I've, I'm probably sure some of that scene with Eric Gog is, I guess, in real life he is arachnophobic. So I guess he, for what I read on IMDb, he still hasn't seen that scene of the film because he really is afraid of spiders in real life. Oh my goodness. But the, just that whiny voice he did, and plus it's like a little, like, it's almost like I think he's going through puberty, too, at the same time, so he's got that voice crack. And it's, but I just love his performance when they go to see Aragog in, um, Harry! 
<laughs> so freaked out. And, or, or when they're, they're flying the car for the first time, or they're flying the car by themselves, it's so goddamn funny. And how I mentioned in the first film, like little things like how Dumbledore claps his hands for Hermione in the first film. Little things like one of my very favorite things in this film is when Ginny comes downstairs for the first time and sees Harry there. And you see how big her eyes get when she sees Harry in the kitchen and doesn't say a word. (laughs) (laughs) And just backs out like, holy shit, I love that. I love that so much. (laughs) So I do love Jenny Weasley, too. And and Bonnie Wright, if you're listening to this, (laughs) (laughs) Insert dream music. (laughs) It could happen. (laughs) <laughs> sure mm-hmm. but, uh, the, going back to the practical effects in this film too uh those mandrakes though aren't those mandrakes things of nightmares oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. oh oh my god those mandrake animatronics are a pure nightmare feel right there oh but that part so do you remember that from the book is hilarious that they talk about <laughs> How you can tell when the mandrakes reach maturity. I remember dying laughing at this. So, um, cause they're, they're babies and their, their song can't kill you until they become adults. So they're watching for them to become adults. And I think they have to, to become adults before you can use them to make that, that potion. Um, but you can tell because they start jumping into each other's pots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they've reached puberty. <laughs> well, I, I don't remember. I don't remember that, but I do remember Hagrid saying, "Like, we gotta wait for their acne to clear up before they can yeah. use the potion." So, and when you think like they're they're they look and they're shaped like little you know animals, and they have to kill them to make these potions. It's kind of sad when you think of it. Very morbid. Everything has a purpose in the wizarding world. This is true. It um. I mean, that's going back alone. I think yeah, I would I would do the math. <laughs> and and uh, going back to Arthur Weasley's line to Harry, what's what's the purpose of a rubber duck? Like <laughs> stuff like that just cracked me because how serious he says that. Like how what's the word I'm thinking of? Um. How straightforward he's playing it. It, 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 it. In a way, it reminds me of like John Cena's performance in The Suicide Squad. <laughs> like James Gunn's humor is take it or leave it. Like, but some of the things that John Cena says in that film aren't very funny, but the way he delivers it is hilarious. <laughs> That's the same way. Like in a way, yeah, but but differently though is like yeah asking what the purpose of a rubber duck is is funny but his delivery of it makes it even funnier it sells it even more it's it's so believable you know he he just he really does so well at at portraying that that genuine you know naivete but also curiosity and making it it genuinely real without you know without looking stupid or, or sounding stupid, you know, like, you know, somebody asking a question or whatever, like they can, you know, say it in a way that made, you know, they're, well, they're just an idiot. But this way it's genuine. Like he wants to learn. He, he doesn't really know, like he, he knows that it's a rubber duck, but what, what does it do? Like he, he wants to know that. So it's, 
Yeah, and and I just I love how how did he delivers that. It's just so like such a a nonchalant question. When uh, naive, uh, when being naive is played genuinely in films, I love it so much because it, it, when it's done well, it works great. Like I've mentioned the show before, Brendan Fraser in a uh, blast from the past, or uh, Edward Norton in Death to Smoochie. When that naivete is played genuinely, it mm-hmm. works great. Absolutely. And, and the actor who played Arthur Weasley, he he you believe that he genuinely wants to know like what would seem mundane to most muggles is exciting to him. Like he wants to know all about it. So that's why I'm sure he why he wanted to have a career in that kind of thing. Yeah. I was just gonna say that too, why he I'm sure he he had that that genuine curiosity even before he was with the Ministry of Magic, like that that curiosity of of Muggles and and what the things that that Muggles use in their world and and how it works and and just to be a little bit more like you know engaged with it and so that's probably very much influenced you know his his career choice for sure so that he could you know even more learn about Muggles and and their items and things and and um yeah i think that's that's kind of neat that he probably was you know he's always learning and he loves to learn that stuff that's my like favorite moment from from uh from the film well i do love those little moments like i mentioned with jenny <laughs> walking in just giving harry that dead eye stare that shocked look but i have to say i do love Harry and uh, Ron going to see um, Aragog in the woods, in the dark, for in the Forbidden Forest. But I'll probably go with the beginning of the film when Fred, George, and Ron come and pick up uh, Harry in the car, and then Harry and Ron themselves driving the car to Hogwarts and getting stuck in the Wampum Wood. And I love how the car keeps coming back in the film, too. <laughs> <laughs> it just drives itself off and just drives itself back and it just drives off again. Well, and it has like a full-blown tantrum. It's like pissed off at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, it's it's got that, that mind of its own for sure. Like it's just, you know, it shows its emotions and <laughs> and that thing is like indestructible. Like, it gets beat up, and it still runs and goes like nothing. <laughs> I love so that. I, I did have a random question for you guys about this film now. So, I think this is the last film you really start to see Hermione being the know-it-all that she is. Um, I had a theory about Hermione being a know-it-all in the first two films and books, at least. Do you think... The reason why Hermione is such a know-it-all when it comes to stuff is because she is um, muggle-born, that she has to overcompensate. So she has, she overcompensates on knowing everything about this. So she reads her books the second she gets them. She knows everything about what she needs to know before she gets to Hogwarts. Do you think that's, in a way, she feels like she has to over, overcompensate because she doesn't come from a... A pure blood or half blood background? I think so. I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of that. 
for sure. I think some of, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good combination of that. And just in the beginning, she, everything is all theory and just learning the basics. But then once it gets into application and applying it, well, even still, she's good at spells kind of right away. But she definitely goes through like a, a transition, especially in the first one where she becomes like an actual friend and not just someone who, I don't know, I'm losing my train of thought, was <laughs> like the class know-it-all, you know, but then yeah. she she becomes a true friend with all of them. And yeah, that she's not just some, you know, because you, you have those those people that can be kind of um, annoying, if the, you know, knowing everything or whatever, and they can kind of be seen as that, whereas you, you, you don't really know what to make of her at first, like, especially when she, you know, like, we first meet her, like, she fixes Harry's glasses and everything, and, like, she does those things, and then, you know, later on, it's, you know, she does more research and everything, and so, and, and yeah, she becomes the, the genuine person, like, you really get to know her, and that she's, she's more than just the person who is always, has her nose in a book, or researching something, or, or, you yeah. know, correcting somebody on something, or, you know, always uh -huh. being that person. Um, and I but, think she kind of like grows into her Gryffindorness because in the beginning she starts out being very strict about following all the rules and and even what does she say something it would be worse to be expelled than to die or or we could have died or worse been expelled that's what she says but later as it goes on she gets more comfortable with kind of bending the rules and breaking the rules and becoming like braver and a little bit more of a rebel and I think it's like she's grown going into a Gryffindor, whereas in the beginning, you think maybe she's a bit more of a Ravenclaw when she's all just book smart and, you know, super bossy, really. <laughs> she, when you first like, meet her in the film and the book, she almost comes off as being like, I hate to say, almost like a Malfoy in the aspect that she she's thinks arrogant. that she's very arrogant in how, how she knows, and she like puts her on the spot to change Scabber's turn him yellow <laughs> it's not a very good spell is it <laughs> or how she's how she tells him it's liviosa or liviosa not liviosa yeah. <laughs> how, how uh once a matter of fact but how she almost seems like she talks with a uh, uh a tone of superiority in a way mm -hmm. like how some know-it-alls can be you know, and that's always that's part of what made me think why maybe she comes off as that way, and it kind of tapers off is because maybe she felt like she had to overcompensate for being Muggle-born. Yeah, I think and, so. I think because she knows that. I mean, everybody is basically on the same page as to being different, and because they they you know have magical families, they know magic, everything like that. The world is very different from that of Muggles, so they're all in the basically the same page of being different and i think hermione is a little bit more so just because she you know she wasn't born into that wizarding family but so i could see how at first she's kind of like well you know i, I got my hogwarts letter and well i better you know kind of know 
show that I know things. Mm-hmm. And maybe like she's it, trying to it, prove herself, right? Yeah, like she's she's really trying to like prove that yeah I can be a part of of your world. Like mm-hmm. I can I can be part of it. I can fit in. I can you know I know my stuff. And then once kind of later on she kind of grows like realizes okay like I'm I'm part of this. It's okay, you know. She she's got friends now. Um, so it's it's she relaxes that a little bit where she doesn't always have to be you know the person who has to be on her a game you know she she doesn't have to know everything she doesn't have to you know try she and prove proves herself. herself so she doesn't have to keep on proving herself she already done yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah she basically gets that done and over with and then it's like okay i'm i'm good to good to go now so any final thoughts on the on the film I don't think so. Um, yeah, I think it's, and I fear I'd be quiet for the most part when it came to the first couple of books just because they were so fuzzy in my memory. So, mm-hmm. I guess we can. Um, You're way more fresh than we are, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been fans for years. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, reading a book takes a lot more effort than it does just to turn on a movie and hit play. And obviously we like movies anyway, so. Absolutely. And I mean, the, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I mean, the, the Harry Potter books are like chips. You can't just read just one. <laughs> that was a perfect comparison. Well, well if I if I can have a humble brag moment here while we're on the topic of the films, I'm pretty sure I got a pat on the back from both of you from knocking out all eight films in less than a day and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is phenomenal. Yeah. When when you yes. told me that you were you were doing your movie marathon and you got through it and I was like my my mind blew all over the place. Like it was just like, holy shit, I don't know how you managed it, but you did and I was impressed. So there you go. <laughs> well, I, I I think Jared, uh, anything that he presents is a challenge. I don't think is there ever a challenge you've ever backed away from. So I think he told me, and I'm guessing he probably told you, like, oh, I'm gonna knock them all out in the weekend. I'm like, okay. Well, the minute you say that, he's like, challenge on, and then he puts on his little hat, and uh, there we go. So I knew you'd do it because. Once you're challenged, I don't think I've ever seen you back away from one. Nope, it's immediately. One, <laughs> it was sort of like we we gave him permission to be like, okay, this is okay, do it. All right, mm-hmm. challenge accepted. Let's. It go. was like hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> <laughs> so there were there was no doubt, doubt no doubt in in my mind or I'm sure Victoria in your mind either that he he. He wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> he knew he was. <laughs> I had I had something called free time for the first time since February. <laughs> a whole, whole weekend with a whole weekend with nothing to do. Cool. <laughs> great way to use it. I have to say, great way to use it. Mm-hmm. No better, no better way to to use that free time. Watch Harry Potter. For sure. And I must say that the thought of the films being 20 hours is more daunting than the actual task itself. Like, 
it just seems like a lot, but it didn't really seem that bad. It, once you started watching, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. I mean, once you like the first few films are are pretty good. Like they're they're a good time and like they're they're you know good pace and everything. And then um, I feel like later on is a little bit more of um, a little bit more of an effort, but still not a challenge. I mean, you, you know, once you're you're in it, you're in it, and it's you know you can you can breeze through it. So, but still, it's a hell of a lot of films and time. So it's still <laughs> it, it, uh, it's still impressive. So. <laughs> it only took them like 15 years to make it, and you uh, power watched it in the weekend. So. Exactly. What? How many years did we watch it? And it took us how long to watch it? And he watches it in like a day, a couple days. Like really? <laughs> I guess I, I checked. I checked the time. So with daylight savings, I watched it over daylight savings weekend. So I started at 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon, and Deathly Hallows Part Two finished at 6:30 p.m. Sunday night. So. Like twenty seven and a half hours. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's that's a lot, but good thing you're not a heavy sleeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on to uh prisoner of Azkaban. Thoughts on the book? We're going to give too much away about my honest thoughts of Prisoner of Azkaban right now. Spoilers. Basically, uh, your brief thoughts of it to start off. It was all right. Moving on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> yeah. I really think more of the world started to get developed in this one, which is, I think, this is. Well, I would say like the first book was was the cocaine, um, but I really think this is where I uh, started to get my fix. Right, I just had to go more. I just had to keep going. I had to keep going, and I like this introduction to Sirius Black and um, oh, Lupin's on. The, uh, Lupin is in this film, so uh, so we start to get more characters that start to get carried on throughout the whole main story. I think it was finally book three where I finally got the the running gag of the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher <laughs> running gag. Um, how there's a different professor every year. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And um, like I so said, one of the big down things of book three is I knew Lupin was a werewolf right away. Um, I put two and two together pretty quick. Um, between his name being Lupin, mm-hmm. um, and Snape doing a class on werewolf, doing a teaching the class on werewolves. So like yeah. a third of the way through the book, I put it together right away. He's a werewolf. <laughs> How does the name Lupin tip you off? Wolf. Is that what Lupin means in like another uh, language? I think it is because uh, I know Lobo is, but I think Lupin is not too far off. Okay. I'm not 100 percent sure, so we can look it up. But Lupin tipped me off right away. 
Yeah. The while, while Victoria is totally not Googling, right? <laughs> I'm typing quietly here. Uh, well, let's see. Oh, it means wolf in French. A lupine person, animal or thing. And means I wolf. took French for four years of high school. Look at me. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> 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 I could have gone to Bon Baton. <laughs> but uh, I'd be surrounded. I'd be the only male there. I'd be surrounded by beautiful women that speak French. I think you could rock one of their their blue dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd do it. <laughs> I bet I'd I bet I would fare better in the Goblet of Fire than uh, uh Fleur did. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but uh yeah between the loop between his name being lupin and and uh snape addressing a class on werewolves while lupin is gone i was able to put two together pretty quick like yeah he's a werewolf <laughs> mm-hmm. that that one was, was definitely a kind of an obvious thing that yeah um yeah there he's yeah lupin is is definitely a werewolf um, one of the things that really do, isn't hard to figure out. <laughs> it well, makes... it's just the fact that it comes out of nowhere too, and that yeah. in, in the book it, it's it's only mentioned briefly in the film that he's taking these potions from Snape. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was able to catch on pretty quick. Like, yeah, something's up with Lupin right away, and it and it was more than the fact that there was a curse to the dark defense against the dark arts teacher position. So. I was able to piece together pretty quick that something's up with Lupin, and he and I think that's how he's described in the book is he's like very frail and pale and like he looks ill a lot. So I think that also factored into it a lot too, because you don't see that kind of complexion in David Thewlis. They wouldn't be able to tell that something's wrong with him. Mm. But um, yeah, I think it's how he's described in the book with his name being Lupin and. Out of left field, Snape's teaching the Defense Against Dark Arts class about werewolves. Like, yeah, yeah, he's a werewolf. Yeah. And that's kind of the storytelling, too, is it's it's very, it can be very direct. Like, it, it doesn't really, you know, beat around the bush of, of telling the story and getting to know characters. Like, it's very much, okay, then we're going to just basically kind of go from A to B. And that's kind of what it does. Like, it's just, okay, boom all of a sudden this is what we're learning about and okay Lupin's a werewolf I mean it, it's kind of obvious but then it's like okay how much more obvious can, can we make it right when you're you know finally learning about about werewolves and everything and so yeah, yeah well no didn't in Gilderoy Lockhart have a book Voyages of Vampires in uh, book two is it one of his books, Voyages with Vampires? I think that sounds right. Sounds familiar. I, I can't remember, though. It's very so, funny. So maybe in a way, like, the fact that werewolves like werewolves and vampires exist in this world shouldn't sound too out of place. But at the same time, when they didn't really touch on it, the other, the other two Defense Against the Dark Art teachers didn't really touch on it. Yeah. It just, like, werewolves. Just comes out of left field. I'm like, okay, Lupin's a werewolf. Yeah, it's even sort of like that. 
I mean, we know it from from reading the book, but it's also sort of like that in the film too, where it's all of a sudden they're doing a class on werewolves. Like it's just it's it's very you know abrupt. So it's it's sort of that same pacing from book to film too. Yeah, because when you go from uh, what's the creatures that Lupin is teaching them to defend themselves against uh, the ridiculous uh, uh, the charm. Book. Guards. The what? The ball guards. Or yeah, bogarts, the bogarts. Whatever you want to say it. Yep. So, yeah, so when they go from that to werewolves out of nowhere, I'm like, okay, this is weird. So, like, yeah, this has to be werewolf. Well, yeah. and in yes. the movie, they definitely draw that out because Snape, like, stomps into the classroom and he says, turn your pages, your books to page 394. And then everyone's like, 394 and it was but professor we're not scheduled to learn about that until and he just kind of plows ahead so it, it really 394 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah it's it's very much it's abrupt and and it, and it kind of works like for the you know how the how the book was and then in, in you know to the film so um i'm kind of glad they didn't sort of change that where it's that just sudden tone change. Um, I do love the suspense building in the book too. How mm-hmm. serious could be anywhere, and then he is being spotted in the. He has been spotted in the castle by the fat lady, or uh, his dog form is being spotted, and how Ron wakes up to see Sirius standing over him in their dormitory. It. I love the suspense, but where did Harry get this broom from out of nowhere? Plus, I'm also curious to see how an owl would carry a broom at the same time. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm curious how that would work. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but, I, but I think this film did a good job of building suspense about how dangerous Sirius is and how mm-hmm. um, he could be anywhere and how the mentors and so like more of that world building that will pay off later in, in later films i have a question about sirius so do you remember when you were listening to the audiobook do you remember at what point that you started to think that sirius wasn't someone really to be afraid of or did it just totally catch you off guard like did you have any idea ahead of time that he wasn't such a bad guy of all the things that got spoiled for me i do not because a lot of things throughout my course of reading these books got spoiled for me mostly deaths of characters and that kind of upset me a couple of deaths that got spoiled for me really upset me but i don't don't recall serious not being a threat upsetting me like by the time like later in the book when it when it's revealed that he's not a bad guy i really think it Kind of, kind of surprised. Like, oh, oh, cool. Like, that's a nice twist. They're like, okay, like they build him up, build him up, build him up, build up, and I really don't. If anything, seen Rick Connie, maybe it was Peter Pettigrew being scabbers the whole time. Mm-hmm. So if anything, if anything, the whole book didn't really work for me. It was Peter Pettigrew was scabbers the whole time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like, thought that was kind of that, genius. Myself. That's that's it, well. They it, they don't explain it badly or anything, mm-hmm. but um, 
that seemed more off-putting to me. I took me by some, that kind of seemed eh, more to me than serious not being a bad guy after all. Because you know what, Harry's had all these horrible three books, and Harry's already had all this horrible shit happen to him. So it was about time something good happened to him. You know, besides getting something to Hogwarts and making friends and being on the Quidditch team, it's about time like he had something good happen to him and in, in more of his personal life like that. So. I liked it, and but you didn't find it predictable, right? Like when you found out it, it was a twist, like a true twist. You hadn't figured yeah. it out earlier, it, right? Yeah, it wasn't as predictable as figuring out that Lupin was a werewolf. Like, yeah, yeah, that was hands down. That was yeah, okay. He's a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, uh, plain as day. So, but like, yeah. So serious, actually being on Harry's side was like a pleasant surprise to me like oh that's cool because they built him to be this huge threat like oh mm-hmm. oh really oh, this is how it was and yeah and you're starting to learn more about the little the little click that him and james and lupin and Pettigrew had and their backstory was snape too which also made me wonder the whole time like why was snape willing to help lupin if he didn't really care for lupin but i think more his i think snape's beef was mostly with uh with uh, James and Sirius, mm. wasn't it? Yeah, more with James and Sirius because of the the Marauders group. Um, definitely, Remus was the the nicer one that wasn't nearly as naughty or mischievous as as James and Peter, James Peter or Sirius. Which I have to say, if they ever decide to do a spinoff, I would love to see like a whole series about the Marauders, about James, Sirius, Peter and Remus. Like, I just think that would be so fascinating and just fun to to get more of an idea about. I agree. I think that would be a lot of fun Um, because, I mean, you you do learn learn about them and what they did, but they you don't really get a lot. So. It would be really cool to explore that a lot more. That would be that would be really cool. And what do we think of um, Harry being a little bit more like confident in standing his ground against the Dursleys? Like he's he's sort of you know gotten to like he's sort of taken a lot of shit from from them, and now we see in this film where he's not taking it like he's sort of a little bit more confident what do we think about that <laughs> i love it marge blowing up but yeah. i mean at this point he's defeated voldemort twice you know and almost you know he's scathed death a few times i think he can handle the dursleys to give him a little sass back <laughs> he he's becoming more confident in what he truly is mm-hmm. and given the age you gotta throw some teenage hormones in there because he's what thir- supposed to be 13 in this yeah, book so. yeah so you could throw a little bit of teenage hormones in there too he's starting to rebel a little bit more mm-hmm. so uh yeah i think that's part of it but i think he's the fact that he over the last two years at this point before he goes back to hogwarts for his third year he is starting to be more confident in his abilities and like victoria said all he's accomplished he's defeated Voldemort twice already mm-hmm. at this point in his life and one unknowingly he's unknowingly beat Voldemort twice <laughs> <laughs> so 
I think it's he's becoming more confident in who he is, and he has this. And he's all all he's acquired from that, and that, and I think it's got to be teenage hormones. Like I, and that's gonna be about the time when uh, boys start to rebel, present company included. About <laughs> <laughs> the it's about the age I started acting out too, so. Well, I think you can throw that some of that in there too. Mm-hmm. You probably like. I mean, like for me, I didn't really relate to that at all. I was. I didn't really have a rebellious phase. That was just me. <laughs> I was, it wasn't a phase. It's still ongoing. <laughs> I was. I was very boring. I, I'll say that now. As a teenager and, and kid, I was kind of boring <laughs> so like I didn't really I mean I get it like you get to that that sort of rebellious face and things but that wasn't something I, I really connected with with him but I'm sure you did for sure because obviously you know you go through that that rebellious phase or whatever so I'm sure you, you connected with him on the on that level um, well, so well to use Aunt Marge as an example it's He's learning more about his family too, as he's learning more about his mother and father as he goes on too. Mm-hmm. So the fact, so all he knew about his parents is that they died in a car crash. That's all he was told when he was really young. Yeah. So now he's knowing again why his parents are dead, why he has this scar, who he is. He's essentially a celebrity in the the wizard world. And so now he's learning more and more about his parents through Dumbledore, through everybody else. The only, the only negative speak he's getting from is from Snape, mostly. Mostly directed at his father. So now like he knows how great his parents were. He is going to step up and defend him now that he's taking it. Especially from somebody like Aunt Marge, who's never been very nice to him anyway to begin with. It's I think that, So the more he's starting to learn about him himself his abilities and his family and his parents mixed with his hormones and stuff as a teenage boy like i think that's why he's able to stand up to the dirges more often like because he doesn't really use he doesn't really hold the magic over their heads because they're well aware that he i don't think uncle vernon's fooled by that at all because uncle vernon's called out in the like you can't use magic outside of school you know the rules So I don't think Uncle Vernon's really threatened by that, and because I think he's called out on it many times in the later books and films, like you're not allowed to use magic outside of school. So I don't think mm-hmm. he uses that as a threat to him. But it's just the fact that he know, he's starting to know more about himself and his family and where he comes from, and more about his world. So I think that's giving him the confidence to stop taking shit. From them because he's very subservient to the Dursleys in the first book, mm-hmm. and then once once his eyes are open to who he is by this point, not for like a better term, there's nothing stopping him now, but there's nothing holding him back from telling them. For sure, and I mean they they did so much effort to really hide it from him. Like, no, you're like we're gonna try and make you quote unquote normal. You know, you're you're not gonna be, you know, we're, we're gonna dismiss anything of you. You know, we we know you're 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 different and whatever, but we're gonna just dismiss all that and and you know. Well, it's, it's um, more we know we know you're different, and we're definitely gonna treat you like you're different. We're gonna yeah. treat you like you're different. Yeah. 
That's and kind not of, in a good and not in a good way. No. And that's why we hate them from book one. <laughs> you're not like you're not like us. We're gonna make sure you know it. Yeah, we're we're gonna be the superior, or you know, you're gonna see us as superior and whatever. And then you just have that like, no, screw you guys. <laughs> I'm getting on the night bus and getting out of here. <laughs> and do you find like this story? It it like I mean like you know like I said like. There's that change, whatever word, that, like, Chamber Secrets got darker. Do you think that this is even more so? I would say it's darker than Chamber of Secrets, because a lot of people consider Chamber of Secrets to be kind of dark. I, it, it's, def- it's, definitely, it's definitely darker than the first film, because you're dealing with the death of Moaning Myrtle and the Hagrid opening the or Hagrid being framed by Tom Riddle for opening the chamber and all that stuff, which I didn't touch on in Chamber of Secrets. The one thing I don't like about Chamber of Secrets is Moaning Myrtle. I think she, the voice choice was a little annoying for Moaning Myrtle in the second film. That got old pretty quick. Um, but uh, I would say this is a little bit darker because now this is somebody that you're given the idea that's, out to directly harm Harry because it didn't seem like Tom Riddle is much of a threat in the first one because they only because it's set up throughout the second book that only Muggleborns are at risk between Hermione and uh what's the kid's name uh kid with the camera uh uh, uh Colin Creevy Colin Creevy, so all, like all the all the kids that are Muggleborns or Half Bloods, they're the ones at risk. So I think this one gets darker because now you're starting to see like a more direct risk to Harry personally. Mm-hmm. So I think it's this is where I think the film, the books and films start to get darker at this point is because now there is a threat to Harry personally now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's certainly gonna you know affect him and you know because it's his 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 friends his peers so it, it's obviously it's you know it, it's gonna be a little bit more meaningful and he gets to the point where he said and says that if Sirius comes looking for him he will kill him mm-hmm. so it, it gets to the so I think that's what I think this the tone is feels darker in this film because. There seems like to be there seems to be more of a personal threat to Harry compared to the first two books. Like yeah, the threat of Voldemort is still out there and people think he will return. So the fact that you hear like Weasley's and Cornelius Fudge and uh people in the what was the Hogsmeade who's talking with McGonagall and Cornelius Fudge, uh Rosemarita them talking about um, Sirius Black, so how he's looking for Harry. He's he's at Hogwarts. So the fact that somebody that the fact that there is a personal threat towards Harry makes this book definitely darker than the other two, or than the first two. Mm-hmm. Definitely for sure. Like it, you know. Yeah, you have you have the threat of of Voldemort, but it's definitely in this one um, a little more 
like it's still there but pushed off to the side just that little bit to focus on like the whole series black and him you know um essentially kind of coming to find harry and thinking that he's you know this really you know terrifying person who is you know ultimately going to kill him and you know and then obviously that changes where it's you know not entirely the case um you know and that harry has that you know that there's the, the connection there but but harry has yet to to know that and yeah i, I and i kind of like that that change that it's it ends up being kind of a you know a, a nice thing instead of just oh something else that he that you know harry has to to figure out and defeat you know Ready to talk about the film, or do you have more questions about the book? I think we're ready to talk about the film. Do we want to talk more about it, or talk about it? So, uh, Victoria, since you've been to Diagon Alley, mm-hmm. how come the how come the night bus is not at a ride? Because in the film, <laughs> the night the night bus would be a hell of a good dark ride. I think that would be genius. I I I don't know if they thought of that. It should be. They have the the Hogwarts Express, which, of course, so they have it spread out over two parts. There's Islands of Adventure, and then I can't remember the other one. There's two parks right next to each other, and you have to buy the, like, Park Hopper Pass to even get on the the Hogwarts Express. Otherwise, you can just look at it. But they totally should. That would be that would be really fun. Yeah, that's I'm, one of my favorite sequences in this film is that, that trip on the night bus. <laughs> yes. I have that Lego set and it's it's just great. I love it. It was it's one of my favorite Lego sets in the whole Harry Potter series because it's so much like it is in the movie. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's a it's such a fun such a fun little journey. I love like little talking shrunken head <laughs> in the old <laughs> ass bus driver. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, um, the glasses. Uh, yet they're driving so fast. Take it away, Vern. Earn. <laughs> Not Vern. Earn. Don't lose your head. Why the long faces? <laughs> <laughs> if you try to pee soup, <laughs> make sure you eat it before he eats you. <laughs> <laughs> I like how those shrunken heads come back later in the film too, <laughs> and hogs me. <laughs> but um. I remember the, the shrunken head being my favorite thing. Like, I mean, I love the whole night bus sequence, but the, the shrunken heads is my favorite. Well, I want to say this film is probably the first film I really started noticing differences between the book and the film. And what tipped me off most was Stanley Shunpike. Because if I remember correctly in the book... He's more of like a Harry Potter fanboy, isn't he? When Harry gets on the book on the bus, and this one, it almost seems like he's played a little more menacingly, menacingly, like not like something's wrong with this guy, but he just doesn't. The portrayal in the book and the portrayal in the film, I know, it's two differences in Stanley Shunpike. He's not played more menacing, but he's played a little bit darker, like something like like more creepy. Yeah. But uh, but 
had they kept him in the movie plot line, I think it would have paid off because it's revealed in the later books that he was a Death Eater. Oh. But the fact that they he's never mentioned again after this film, I thought it was kind of a weird, like, okay, why are they playing him like this? Then if they're not going to touch back on it again. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's, I think this was the first time I started to notice things from the book and the film, actually. So three films in, I started to notice major differences. Um, and I noticed, like, uh, at the end of this film, Harry gets the fireball from Sirius at the end of the film. I'm sitting there watching, like, when I got to the end of the third film, I'm like, wait a minute, didn't he get the broom earlier in the film, or earlier in the book? And look it up, like, yeah, he did get the, because I thought McGonagall took it away from him to have uh, Flitwick check it for charms and uh, curses. Mm-hmm. So I was right about that part. So, like, hey, look at me. I remember something from a book. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, this almost was my favorite film of the series, of all of them. Uh, and I'll go back to performances, because now you got one of the greatest actors in the world playing Sirius Black. Yep. Gary Oldman is hands considered like hands down considered one of the best actors in the world and having him play play it looked really good. And I loved seeing Buckbeak in the flash too. Mostly CG. I thought that looked so good. And they they do dodge around a lot of that too. I think a lot of the Buckbeak stuff. Yeah. In the film. Um because it's definitely like when when like Malfoy like he gets hurt by by Buckbeak and it's more of a de- big deal than it is sort of in the film. Yeah. And I, I don't think yeah. it, like it's he he really you know plays it's it like off a it's like a C plot. Yeah. Because usually I think in the book it's more of a B plot. Mm-hmm. But it takes the back seat to other things. Of course, the main story with Sirius looking for them and everything but i think it took like a farther back seat and um and this is the film we get introduced to professor trelawney which <laughs> I, I i shit you not first glimpse at professor trelawney i swear to god i thought it was Kristen wig it looks just like Kristen wig <laughs> yeah i could I see that for sure <laughs> and then I looked it up because it was bugging me all the time. Like, is that Kristen Wiig? Like, no way, no way, no way. And I looked up, it's like Emma Thompson. Like, okay, I know who Emma Thompson is. Yeah, so I can see it now. But I, hand to God, thought it, it was Kristen Wiig at first glimpse. At first glimpse. Yeah, I could, I could see that that kind of resemblance for sure. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that, and the fact that she's played a little more comedic, like she plays it a little more comedically. I really thought that uh, it could it really could have been Kristen Wiig. It would have been it made so much sense. But I I do love Emma Thompson's performance as yeah. Professor Trelawney, mm. and like I think in the book she's kind of played like she's a fraud, and only Hermione sees it. Yeah. Because if I'm not mistaken, in the books later in the books, don't we find out that like Lavender Brown and. Uh, Pavardi really love her. Mm-hmm. Really. Um, but I don't. I, I, she just came off as more comedic to me in the film, which I didn't mind at all. 
Like she didn't come off. Like she comes off as being. She doesn't seem as big of a fraud as Gilderoy Lockhart does. <laughs> but she's really sold on herself for having the gifts she has. I think. Mm-hmm. So like I, I thought it was an interesting way to look at it, and, and only Hermione's see what class is rubbish. <laughs> and I love. And I want to think. I want to say the Time Turners played it more in this film than it is in the book because I love how Ron's the running gag in this film of like, when did she get here? When did she get here? Yeah, she just appears. And I, I, I when I rewatched the film last night, <laughs> like, yeah, they they framed the shots so well. Like, Huh. <laughs> she just looks come out of nowhere. Like I didn't notice that. So I love how Ron's like, where did she get here? Where did she get here? Where did she get here? <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, in this film, um the Melissa, please correct me again, Lupin's first lesson. Oh, um the Bogarts. The Bogarts. So oh, yeah. in the when I was reading the spark notes for the book to refresh my memory today, they said that Lupin envisioned it as an orb, but in the film, it's a a moon when he goes to save Harry. So that, that made a lot of sense. So I think, I honestly think that probably would have tipped the scales to somebody, to like a general audience member. So why would this professor be afraid of a moon, the full moon? So I think, It'd be easier for somebody to piece that together easily. Like, okay, he's afraid of moons, and we're talking about werewolves here. <laughs> and while we're on the subject of Professor Lupin, um, I already mentioned Gary Oldman being one of the world's greatest actors playing Sirius Black. Mm-hmm. At first, David Thewlis in my head was not who I pictured Lupin to be or what Lupin would look like. Mm-hmm. Because... The way Jim Dale performs it, he performs it being more old and frail. Because yeah. if, if, if I went based off of Jim Dale's performances in all the book audiobooks, I would have had David Thewlis as Cornelius Fudge, the way he performs Cornelius Fudge. But when I rewatched the first three films this week with blocking Jim Dale's performance out of my mind, I was not only was I able to enjoy the first three films a lot more, but I grew okay with David Thewlis's performance as Lupin because he comes off very sincere. It's somebody I would believe would be friends with Sirius Black and James Potter. Mm-hmm. And his performance of Harry, he the way he you show he cares for Harry is so um, genuine in that aspect, too, that he's trying to teach Harry all this stuff. And I think one of the joking things I noticed both times in this film where when it's revealed that Sirius and Lupin were friends when they're in the Shrieking Shack, I laughed my ass off because the way those two act to each other, when they say they're going to kill Pettigrew, it reminds me of when two heel or bad guy wrestlers get together and they cut a promo (laughs) That's what it reminded me, and I mean that in a good way. It was very entertaining in that. I was like, look, these guys are like two bad guy wrestlers that just teamed up, and they're 
talking shit about somebody good. Like I, I loved it because I loved that chemistry they had. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, um, I wasn't disappointed in that at all. I, I enjoyed that very much. Um, and reading between the lines is something we're probably going to touch on in the later films and books. You start to see that care for that Snape has for Harry. It become I think it's more apparent in the film than it is in the book. At least to my bad memory for me in the book so long ago. When uh even though uh Harry just put the Expelliarmus curse on Snape to keep him from killing or from doing something looping and serious he still comes out of the Whomping Willow and protects Harry, Ron, and Hermione from Lupin in his true form. Mm-hmm. So, and it reminds me of a meme I saw on Facebook a while back where this is like two teachers that hated Harry, and one it has Snape protecting them, and then it has Umbridge behind Harry and Hermione, making them, making, having her lead them through the dark forest. Um, so when you finally see the grand scheme of things with Snape in the last film, it really makes you're starting to see those um, you're starting to see those east, those uh, those little breadcrumbs of the story of his story arc come back. So it does not seem like retconny at all, at least in the film aspect. Because in the book aspect, okay, it's revealed. Oh yeah, he was protecting Lily's child the whole time but i think it became very obvious i noticed that right away in this film like oh yeah he does not care for harry because of who he is from his father's side but he cares for harry in the aspect of uh being lily's child Mm -hmm. so that something like that i thought was really well done in this film so it shows so it doesn't seem retconny at all when you get to the later things but I think if anything disappointed me in this film, being the horror movie fan that I am, particularly werewolves, I was not too fond of uh, Lupin's werewolf form. I found it to be the most underwhelming thing of the whole film, actually. I'm with you on that. I don't, I don't like how they they wolfed him out. He just looked so skinny, and his legs were just so I don't know, like little. I mean, I, I made, I made the I made the comparison today to another Harry Potter fan, but the sales guy, and I go, he looks like Weasel from the Suicide Squad. <laughs> yeah. That was it. That was really like the one thing that really killed it for me. Was like that I found that so underwhelming. I'm like, oh, we're gonna get a badass werewolf transformation here, and like it, I I just found the whole. That was the only thing I. That was really the only bad thing I found about this whole film was i thought lupin's werewolf form was very underwhelming mm-hmm. i i i'm definitely in agreement on that like it, it I, I feel like it it could have been a little bit better but it just yeah it, it was very underwhelming because it was kind of exciting to be like oh we get to see you know this him transform into a werewolf and and it just yeah and, and yeah it just it really um it is very much underwhelming yeah well, other than that, I do love a lot of aspects of the film. Like, I love Fred and George, how Fred and George give Harry the Marauder's Map, how they catch him in the snow and drag him back. 
If anything else was underwhelming about the film, I'd say I, w- I would like to have seen more of Hogsmeade, maybe. Yeah. I I would have liked to have seen, like, a little bit more of, like, Ron and, and Harry when they were, like, in the book, when when they first, they have their, their divination class and everything, and they're, and they're doing their homework, and they, they make up, like, completely bullshit answers, and they do really well in the class. It's like, I would have loved to have seen just a short little moment of that, of them just, you know ripping on it or whatever or coming up with silly answers or something like kind of exactly like what they did in the in, in the book just for like it doesn't have to be that whole time but just that little bit i think would have been kind of fun but yeah, yeah. i agree but it goes back to a later point we made earlier. i think that was that was fat i was okay with being trimmed mm-hmm. like you know it it becomes like later on that they get yeah, they don't really care for the class and hermione yeah I think they got. I think they got the general points across what they needed to for divination class. I think that Hermione thinks it's rubbish, and Harry and Ron aren't too keen on it. Well, they don't really. They don't really, like. I guess to what you're. You're right there, most actually, because they don't really touch on the fact that Ron and Ron and Harry don't care for the class, but they yeah. do touch on Hermione not caring for it, and it. She later drops the class. Yeah, I find it's it's a little bit more focused on her and her thoughts of it. Like, just that she doesn't like it and whatever, and she's doing her other classes and things. And and so it's, it, like, you do get the sense that, yeah, they're kind of, like, they've got that healthy skepticism of the, of the class. And, like, okay, is this really a thing? But, you know, I, I think it's, it's also done a little bit more seriously. Like, it's just, okay, you know. You know, Trelawney seeing the Grimm and Harry's Cup and everything like that. Like, it's a little bit more serious there but I, th- I think it would have been kind of fun to to see that just them bullshitting answers and, and whatever but I mean it's I, I get it it's to trim that you know the minor details so it's not really that big of a, of a deal at the end of the day but well, they, do show, they do show Ron sleeping in that class too so. yeah they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of love how well it's like a little bit of a setup for what two books down the road but when they do get into like the prophecy that literally the entire book is based on that the whole everything is set up around this prophecy was her prophecy and something that I don't even think does she not even remember it but I just love this setup that it's like oh she's this goofy little you know I don't know, not to be taken seriously. Her class is not to be taken seriously. Yet her prophecy is the basis of the whole entire Harry Potter story and why he went after Harry Potter's parents. Like, I I love how that is like a little nugget, you know, that sets it up, that just that catches you off guard, that it was her prophecy. But I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it does come later back. I think it comes back uh, half blood prince, if I'm not mistaken, because he addresses Professor Trelawney about the prophecy. Um, and also, this film is this is the first film without Richard Harris's Dumbledore. And I I did not write down the I forgot to write down the name of the actor that played Dumbledore from here on out, but I did uh, notice Michael a, Gambon. Who? Michael Gambon. Michael Gambon, yeah. Um. I did notice like a performance tonal shift too in Dumbledore 
from here on out between how Richard Harris performed him and how Michael uh, Gambon, you said? Yep. Michael Gambon portrayed him. And the way, and I really think a lot of my casting quibbles come from Jim Dale's performance of him. But the way I broke it down in my head is I, I really actually have no preference. I actually prefer, I actually like both double door performances from both actors. And um, the way I broke it down in my head is uh, Richard Harris's performance of Dumbledore is how I expected uh, Dumbledore to be based off of just uh, Jim Dale's performance. But Michael Gambon's performance in the later films is how I'd, I'd expect Dumbledore to act with all this shit going on around him. Because I think I made the joke many times with Melissa off air. Harry gets into so much shit and he gets out of it and I go. I always wonder to myself in later books, do you think there's ever a point in Dumbledore's life where he's just sitting in his office with his hands in his face, going, "For fuck's sake, Harry." <laughs> <laughs> so I think Michael Gambon's performance of Dumbledore from here on out is like, he's a little more lively, mm-hmm. but I could still see a lot of Richard Harris's Dumbledore performance in him. Just got a little more, more life to it, I think. So. Yeah, so that was I did. Uh, so, so the first time I watched Chamber of Secrets in the Prison of Azkaban, I didn't notice that change. So by the time I got the Goblet of Fire, I was actually pretty okay with uh, Michael Gambon's performance of Dumbledore. But I did notice it was a little bit of a people talk about like tone shock. <laughs> that probably was more of a tone shock for me was the the changing of Dumbledore's mm-hmm. than maybe necessarily the overall tone of the film. Yeah, I would agree. I mean. Like, Richard Harris's performance was a lot... He, he kind of played... Sort More of a, subdued. Subdued and a little bit warmer character. Whereas Michael Gambon's version is very much... A little bit more active. Like, a little lively in the sense of being involved in things. and, and But then also, you know... I think he's, he's not as warm as previous... But they're, not that he's not caring, but it's just it's not as sort of obvious in in his performance. But I it, it was definitely um, a little bit of a shock when when I first saw it, and it was just sort of like I, I kind of had to wrap my brain around it a little bit because it was so different. But I don't mind it at all. I, I think it, I think he he really you know I, I think he did a great job and a great performance of. of the character so it was just uh at first it was a little bit of a okay i need to kind of wrap my head around this version of of dumbledore um and who he is and and how he's going to be and everything like that but once you kind of you know get past that it's like yeah he's you know quite all right it's it's not like the performances are night and day either like you could very much Michael Gambon's Dumbledore, you really could tell came from Richard Harris. Like you, mm-hmm. it's not like they, they play the characters completely differently. Mm-hmm. It's it's like I said, it's not exactly night and day <laughs> change, but, but it's it's enough to notice at least. Because when you get to replace a major character like that, 
due to a unfortunate death from Richard Harris after the not long after the it was a few weeks before the second film was released or after the film was released he passed away. Yeah, somewhere around there. So I think would you have to do like a major casting change because of something like that? It come you get that initial shock, but, but after a while, it, I could still see them there. I could I could still see Dumbledore, the same Dumbledore from both their performances. Mm-hmm. What do you think, uh, Victoria? Well, I have to say, I kind of think. When you look at the full story of Dumbledore and how what everything you learn about him in the end and even what you learn more about him in the Fantastic Beasts movies, like he he ain't sweet sunshine. You know, he was a master. He had a master plan. And really, in a way, it was kind of sadistic in the end. Like he was just keeping Harry alive. I think the last movie used the term like as a pig to slaughter, like had to keep him alive in the very end, knowing that he would be killed. And, you know, I don't know if if Dumbledore knew that Harry would still end up living in the end. But I think it's like he had all these master plans that he didn't reveal and and kept close at hand and had a, a kind of a sordid background history. And I really hope even the third Fantastic Beast, I think we're going to even learn more about that. But he really wasn't like the very first movie. They make him out to be this sweet, caring, you know, all knowing wise man. And then you learn later on he's a very flawed man who made many mistakes, especially with his family and his sister and stuff. So I kind of like the progression and how they show him to be more kind of cutthroat and a little more, you know, having moments where he's not. Not quite like aggressive. Well, when he like Goblet of Fire, he definitely has a moment or two where he is. But I kind of like that harder, tougher edge that comes on. And I think, you know, really, it kind of could have been there in the first movie, too. And I, I'm sure we'll get to it later, too. But I, I, I really like how Dumbledore does not claim to be a saint either. Like he mm-hmm. does not That's claim, true. well, I've, I've been clean nosed my whole life. He he has his trials and tribulations that he's gone through. He has the skeletons in his closet. He's just, he doesn't deny them. He's just more private about his life. For sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, how he is and that you just, yeah, you see that, that progression of the character. And it's just, there. I mean, it's, you know, it, it could still be very much the tip of the iceberg of learning about him. Cause I feel like there's so much more and, you know, I, I hope we do get to learn a little bit more about him, even in the you know the next Fantastic Beast film, because it would be kind of neat to know even more about him. But yeah, it's it's nice to know that he's well, not nice, but just you know that he's not you know you might see him as this perfect person, but he's not perfect. You know, it, he's he's made mistakes. He's he's done things maybe he's regretted. He's you know, very, very flawed, but, you know, he, he can still, um, you know, he can still manage to care and he can still, you know, do those things. So he's not completely kind of a cold person, but yeah, I definitely, I've, I've thoughts about, about that, about him a little bit later on, uh, for sure. So. That's true. (laughs) Cool. Cool. So I think we've we've pretty well covered most of 
or for a good chunk anyway of uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. Do we have anything else we want to mention, or do we want to move on to Goblet of Fire? If you order the pea soup, man, eat it before he eats you. (laughs) 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 All right. Um, So obviously, yeah, moving on to the the next one, Goblet of Fire. Um, Once again, thoughts, basic thoughts on this one. I really enjoyed the book, I think. And like I mentioned earlier, some of my favorite things above the books is how Harry gets away from the Dursleys. And I think this is one of my favorite ones is when uh, Fred and George and Arthur and Ron come in through the fireplace. And um, how Fred and George accidentally leave the toffee (laughs) for Dudley to eat. <laughs> Which yeah. spoilers like, is one of the things that really breaks my heart about this didn't make the film. <laughs> so I really wanted to see what they would do for special effects if they left the the toffee around for Dudley to eat. And it's like the, the mass destruction that the Weasleys leave in the Dursleys' house like um, cracked me up instantly. As much as I despise the Dursleys, I love watching all these hijinks that happen to them at the beginning of all the books, which which is something I really look forward to in all the books, honestly, was how Harry winds up getting away from the Dursleys. And I think this is probably one of my favorite moments in all the books, how they get away from how he gets away from this time is the whole, uh, them coming through the fireplace and taking them away so they can go to the Quidditch World Cup and everything. Um... But this book, I want to say I probably had a little more familiarity with because to tell a quick story 15 years ago, so I didn't go not I did not go into Goblet of Fire completely blind. I did see the Goblet of Fire film about 15 years ago when I was in college because we showed it at during movie club. So I did watch the film then. Just don't, don't remember much of it because it was what 2005 2006 when I saw the film, and then. Um, it was on the gym a few years ago when I was there. Uh, audio was off, so I didn't hear it. So I looked up and go, this is Goblet of Fire, because I saw saw Robert Pattinson right away. Yeah, so I, I had a little more familiarity with the Goblet of Fire film-wise. But reading the book, I got... So I knew some of the things going in, like a mon, uh, Mad-Eye. I wasn't really Mad-Eye. I knew Voldemort comes back in this. But I think I made this well-known reading the film, or reading the book, or listening to the audio book, is... When Voldemort finally makes his return, that really sucked me out of the story because he has such a long monologue when he comes back. <laughs> and that really took me out of it. Like, I was really moved. It really killed the momentum for me. It Because he essentially just re-explained the first three books. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what did he Chat Cedric Diggory to death in this book? What? <laughs> <laughs> but like as I read the book more and more, like certain things became very clear to me in my in my mind about the book. So um about the film and everything. So yeah, so this one I kinda had a little familiarity with me. 
and going forward. So, and that's about it. Like, so I had a little familiarity with it and I was really enjoying it until it got to the whole part with Voldemort have this huge monologue. And then that really slowed me down. I think that was just a huge momentum killer for me is this huge monologue. Mm-hmm. But I did like the aspect of the Goblet of Fire being incorporated and everything else in it. So, and you, I think you've noticed even a darker turn in this now. Mm-hmm. At least at the at least at the end of the film. For sure. Because it's 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 fairly. Well, I don't really want to say it's it's completely lighthearted, but. It's a little bit more uh, exciting, I guess, just because simply because of um, of the the Triwizard Tournament and and everything like that. So there's that buzz of excitement, and so you know you got the different schools and everything that are coming, and you know you got competitors who are who are going to compete and everything, and and then you have the you know that sudden you know. Um, sort of drama around, you know, Harry's name ending up in the in the cup. Um, which I mean you kinda <laughs> kinda sort of saw a mile away. I mean, it's just it's him. He has to get into something, right? So of course he's there's gonna be some way he's he's gonna be involved with it. He's not just gonna be completely, you know, disconnected from it. But um you know it's still th- this one the Goblet of Fire is one of my favorites out of the series for book and film. Me too. I think it's like, you know, you get to see the different like environments and everything. And then also see like the dragons, which are really cool and the different creatures. And so I think it's, it's a lot of that too, where it's just a lot more of that stuff you, you get to experience. Which is cool. One positive thing about this book is I like the further world building and the point that there you get the point that there are other schools that focus on witchcraft and wizardry. So I I do like that aspect of the world building. Mm -hmm. So so, yeah, it's not just you know you you know that there's a whole wizarding world, but it's not just you know Hogwarts for being a school. Like it's not just that one thing that there's other ones. So yeah, I really like that too. Where you get to see these different schools and characters and really expanding that, that world. And that Quidditch, what was it? The Quidditch world cup where they start off with, like that was a really fun addition to, you know, like professional sports. Of course, if they're playing it in school, there's going to be professional teams. And that was, that was neat to watch. Yeah. Well, to read, we're talking about the book, but stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, it was fun. Like, just it's a little bit different than just okay, they're going back to Hogwarts and we're starting from there. Like it's you start with them going to the the Quidditch World Cup, and that that's really cool. And I loved like this was the first time we learned about port keys and mm-hmm. like the the tent. I just think that is the coolest idea in a magic world of like a tent that looks small on the outside, but then you go inside and it's just humongous. And it's just, it's so, it's such a neat idea and detail that they put in. Wizards and time Lords are a lot alike. 
<laughs> Bigger on the inside. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a and it's like this beautiful room inside. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> and you also, in the book, you start to get, they build more of that connection between Harry and Voldemort, too. Yeah. Like you, you get small tastes throughout the other books. Like okay, they ha- they're they have the same core in their wands and all this other stuff. But now you're starting to get now because this is when Harry's starting to have his visions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's you know affecting him of that a little bit more instead of sort of just oh like it's still always a thing where his scar hurts or he you know he knows but it's more in depth now where he's seeing things and you know seeing things happen and you know that really shows that you know closer connection to Voldemort which is such a big thing going forward too it's it's starting to actually build Voldemort as this huge threat because with book three it it focuses more on Sirius being a threat to Harry but with Pettigrew being a follower, a Death Eater, it uh, it builds a world like yeah, he's out there and he still has all these followers out there. Now it's starting to ramp, it, it's starting to ramp up with him being a bigger threat than just being Tom Riddle. Yeah, that yeah, he he starts out like he's, you know, they kind of talk about him like him, especially earlier, like you know he's weak, he's you know. Even Hagrid says, you know, too tired to carry on kind of, you know, thing. And, you know, or he's dead or whatever. And then now suddenly it's like, okay, he's definitely becoming a huge intimidation. Like, he's not somebody that, you know, you want to be messing with on any level. (laughs) And he's becoming a threat. And that definitely shows in, in the book, for sure. Like, he's... You know, um, he he's starting to gain even more power. Yeah, I think I did start to question at one point, right around the time he came back. I was like, well, he was in the back of Cole's head, and he was doing the unicorn blood in the first book. Then he was Tom Riddle in the second book. So I, I kept thinking, I was like, how does this guy keep coming back? Yeah. <laughs> like, how does he keep doing it? Like, so I think they, I think maybe. If I thought anything was preposterous at that point, it was probably that. Like, well, how many times does this guy keep coming back? Like, what do you have to do to kill this man? Like, mm-hmm. look at how I got, well, how can he be doing this and then die? How can he be doing this? And then, and, like, how can he be doing this? How can he keep coming back after all this stuff? Like, what the hell is keeping this guy alive? Like, <laughs> I don't even think that anymore. I've seen enough Chuckies and enough, you know, even superhero movies. You know that no one's ever really dead, right? Yeah. So I don't. That doesn't even phase me anymore. But except except Uncle Ben and the Waynes. Yeah, there we go. They're dead. <laughs> <laughs> but then we'll get a new spinoff, and then they're alive again. And <laughs> but I think it. Like yeah, he he's a bit of a, uh, a a constant thorn. Like he's he's always there. He's coming back and you know more powerful than ever kind of each time. Um, but I think it, it it is kind of a little ridiculous if you think about it. Like he would you just freaking die already? Like what what the hell do we have to do to get rid of you? How but, many chances do you get? 
Exactly. But I think it, it with like the Horcruxes, I think it, it sort of makes it a little more sense. Like makes things just yeah. a little less but the, preposterous. But, it's, because it's but, that's, but, but that's if you look into the future. Yeah. But that, but and I mean, don't point, know we don't, that. So we don't like, know about the Horcruxes at this point. Yeah. I think we, we, you know, we definitely change our, our, our mindset later on where it's like, okay, it makes sense that he kept coming back. But at first it's like, dude, can you just die? <laughs> but I think there's little, there's like little seeds planted, though, because like doesn't even in the very beginning when Hagrid is telling Harry, you know, about Voldemort that he says, some say he died, Codswallop, I say, you know, and they, there's always and I think Voldemort. Dumbledore even says at some point, well, I don't think that he's gone either. And in some other form, he'll be back. So it's like they they kind of plant those seeds. So you kind of, I don't know, in a way expect it. Yeah. So it's not it's not so much of a, a surprise when it's like, oh, you're you're back again. Really? Like, <laughs> it's it's kinda, <laughs> if you were paying attention to what characters said previously. So it's sort of like, OK, when is he, he coming back? And I think it's, you know, throughout the series, you have to have that, that constant threat. And he's definitely that, where he's he's always there, whether he's sort of pushed to the side in the third book and then he comes back next time around. So, you know, he's still there. He's still very much a thing. Um, but, yeah, so that it, it makes sense that, you know, it's not such a, you know, you, you still kind of feel like, oh. But it's you also know <laughs> that from the other little things that okay yeah you know he's coming back and it's not gonna be you know it's like you knew it was coming so you don't need to like you know face palm and be like really but <laughs> and don't don't try to compare Voldemort to Jason and Victoria because lightning bringing Jason back that's just science <laughs> science. <laughs> Getting a fence post step to your heart and lightning strike, it will definitely bring you back to life. But <laughs> <laughs> you living on, but you living on through it. Can never die, you know. Then there's that too. And <laughs> but, a, but a part of your soul living on through a diary—that's just preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I think I think with the 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 books though, you have to be. There is a, a little bit of. Of remembering that this is just you know fantasy book and anything ridiculous it's just how the world is right you can't really think too too logically about it because then you're in trouble <laughs> so yeah so i think we've um covered the book pretty well um our thoughts on it and everything so how about we move on to the goblet of fire film um and what are your thoughts on it Basic thoughts on it before we kind of go a little bit more in depth, Jared. I realized first time we were watching the film in almost 15 years, like how much I remembered and forgot at the same time. And talking to other people, now that I've seen all the films and read all the books, now I can actually talk to Harry Potter fans. Like, like I, me and Victoria and Beth Ann would talk at tug practice about where I was and and Victoria's brother-in-law big time we'd all I'd talk about where I was at that point and now the director of my play that I was in I could talk to her more in depth now and I've gotten the I've 
I heard a lot of people say that Goblet of Fire is their least favorite film. And I can see why. Because of all the films that had stuff from the book left out, I think this one has the most left out of it, I think. And, like, some major stuff, too. Like, well, the removal of Winky, the house elf, didn't really bother me, but there's no... Spew was completely left out of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The entire thing. Um, a lot of that stuff. Uh, who's the. Oh, Barty Consciousness. There's somebody else. But um, the most disappointing thing for me, I think, in the film was uh, them not getting to see Dudley eat the toffee in real life. I, that that would, that would be cool. Cause I think the film starts with them going to the Quidditch Cup, isn't it? Like he's already in the burrows. Yep. Mhm. Yeah. We start out that way. Yeah, so basically started the burrow. Yeah. Mm. But uh, I can see why people would not like this one the most. I I could see definitely. Um, I think the biggest problem for me with the film is uh, I really think they tipped their hand too soon in the film that mad eye is not mad eye. Mm. And I think that comes down to the nervous ticks that Barty Crouch jr. Has like licking his lips and stuff. They really tipped the hand too much when they showed David Tennant licking his lips in the pensive. Yeah. I'm like, you just really revealed halfway through the film that that is not mad eye moody. Like yeah. I, I really think that's the biggest flaw in the whole film is you. That I don't remember in the book Barty Crouch being insane at the level that David Tennant plays him at. Like I don't like it's almost like somebody the director told David Tennant, hey, play this like you're play Barty Crouch like you're playing the Joker. Because mm. I don't remember like Barty Crouch in the in the book being like this crazy like how David Tennant plays him. Mm. Because we know, like they set up that Mad Eye, Mad Eye is a little off himself from like years of being an oar and everything. Mm-hmm. He he's seen some shit, but I think David Tennant plays Barty Crouch a little more, more crazy. And at first, I think they they play him like, okay, something's not right with this guy. And with the fourth film and the fourth different per, defense against the Dark Arts Professor, you know something's got to be up right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> But I really think the biggest flaw in this film is they really reveal that it's not Mad-Eye Moody. Cause, well, those of us who've read the book beforehand know that it's not Mad-Eye Moody. Yeah. But I really think even for non-readers, they tip their hat way too soon in the film that it's not Mad-Eye. By showing Barty Crouch Jr. licking his lips in the pensive flashback, I really think they really flubbed up bad with that, I think. It... it if the if the film if any of these films had a big flaw that would be the film's biggest flaws I think really think they revealed the secret behind Mad Eye Moody too soon in the film like that they really dropped the ball on that I think mm-hmm. I, I would agree for sure um that, that's probably the biggest thing that yeah that really sticks out that's yeah they they could have been a little bit more you know, elusive with it, not so like, oh, this, okay, you instantly figure out who it is. Um, I mean, you already know if you read the book, but 
like you said, somebody outside of that, they would instantly figure it out. So I think they, they could have done a little bit better on that. And, and I could see how, yeah, in some cases this one's a little bit, could be a little bit underwhelming just because the, there is a lot of trimming that had been done. But, eh, you know, I, I still really enjoy the film. I think, I, 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 I think it's the one film of the eight that got the most pivotal stuff trimmed from it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, but it was nice to like relive some of those moments I did vaguely remember from the first time watching it 15 years ago of Fred and George trying the aging spell <laughs> on themselves. <laughs> uh, or just playing it off <laughs> or, uh, mm-hmm. so, um, this is the question I had in the books. Uh, Pavardi is their first name, right? Harry goes to the old ball with, or is that her last name? Pavardi Patil. Yeah, Pavardi's her first name. Okay, so the Patil sister? Mm-hmm. So the Patil sisters. Wasn't one of them a Ravenclaw in the book? Hmm. Pavardi is a, 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 a Gryffindor, but wasn't her sister that Ron goes with? Wasn't Padma, she, yeah. isn't it Padma Patil? Yeah, yeah yep. I thought Padma was a Ravenclaw. One moment, please. I, I believe she is. Um, well, I think I think they have them both as Gryffindors in this. Padma was sorted into Ravenclaw. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and Pavardi was Gryffindor. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, look at the big brain on Jared today. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, it's a little fresh for you because I just checked. Uh, this book came out in 2000. So, for for me and Melissa, we read this book 21 years ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Now you feel old. <laughs> oh, good lord! <laughs> Twenty-one years ago, because I have not reread this yet. So I also I, read. I also read this book like back in July. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so little, you got six months. months ago. You got twenty-one years. It's close. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. with with my busy schedule, my how my brain works, it it was yes. really hard for me. So I'm like, I, that was like, that was that was the one thing that was bugging me the whole film is when Padma was like, wait a minute, I thought the I thought the younger sister was Ravenclaw. <laughs> yeah. I but like I how just, they're growing in this though, and like becoming like they're finally getting crushes and making it a little more obvious, and I like that part of it too, like just showing their age and and that they're actually starting to care about how they look, and we see Hermione actually look like a girl for the first time, and. I think that part's fun. The seeds get planted a little bit, too, with uh, Ron and Hermione, too, because they get jealous that they go with one another to go go to the old ball with different people. Mm -hmm. Now, I think as far as the Harry and Ginny, now, I don't remember much of the book, but I thought there were more seeds about Ginny trying to, like, maybe make Harry jealous, or is that not... Yeah, it was. And in the movie, it's like nothing happened other than when they were like the very first time she met Harry. Then you just see nothing of like her crush on him for a while. And it's touched on the second book and second film how she talked about Harry all summer, and then now she's. Yeah. I I believe she goes to the Yule Ball with Neville. Uh huh. And then, uh, then she starts dating Dean Thomas in the next book. Yep. So Mm -hmm. it's like all plots to make Harry jealous in the book at least. But, mm. 
because this is when Harry's infatuated with Cho, which we'll get to that in the next film and book. Eh, eye roll. (laughs) I think you guys both know my thoughts on that anyway, too, with the whole Harry and Cho thing. But, um, yeah, so it was nice to see some of those spots of the film. So I I think that's what I realized I remembered more of the film than I actually did. So I didn't remember somebody dying, but not, not specifically Cedric Diggory. I do remember Voldemort coming back. I do remember somebody dying. <laughs> but I, I'm a bad Hufflepuff because I've made a lot of Cedric Diggory jokes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you love Twilight so much. Is that why? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's clear. It's clear now. <laughs> One thing I loved about the movie is how they had specific music for each of the other schools of magic, the Durmstrang and for the Bobatons Academy. And I love that they kept repeating it throughout certain parts of it, but it just, I love that, that little layer that was added in there. Cause I can, yeah. the minute I picture them, I hear the song in my head and I just, whenever I, it just makes me connect the dots every time. Are you going to the Quad City Symphony Orchestra next week for their recording of uh, they they are playing the Goblet of Fire score to the I movie. I have always really really wanted to go to that, and it's always the weekend of Festival of Trees, and I usually volunteer. So I honestly I didn't realize that it was next weekend, so I may have to see if I can make that fit. I but, thought about going, but I didn't want to go alone. <laughs> <laughs> that would be it. Would be super fun. I've always wanted to see that. I think I get very emotional in like live concert music, though, as a, a band nerd. Like I'd probably cry and have to wear sunglasses because that just that always hits me in the feels every time. But I bet it would be amazing. That would be absolutely fucking awesome. <laughs> oh. It would. It would. Uh, I uh I did have a joking moment in this film with Moaning Myrtle, even though I didn't like her in the second film. I don't really care for her in this film either, even though but luckily her she's more brief in this one. I thought it was kind of creepy that she's spying on Harry in the tub. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah, you're you're a ghost and you're dead and all, but still it's still a fourteen year old boy you're trying to get a peek at. <laughs> Like you're dead, but he's still 14 technically. <laughs> but if you add up all her years of being dead, then yeah, that's major creepy. But but, but the fact that, the fact that yeah, I think the actress is like 37. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you're having this woman look at a trying to take a peek at a 14 year old boy. <laughs> Weird, <laughs> a little creepy. <laughs> but I, I was kind of like impressed with myself how much I was able to remember f- from seeing the film originally 15 years ago to just last weekend. Like, oh, I do remember that. I do remember that. I do remember that. I do remember dragons. I remember the maze. I remember. I didn't remember. I don't think I quite remember the mer people, but yeah. but I did remember like some aspects. But I think the main thing that stuck out. 15 years ago it stuck out now was Fred and George with the <laughs> with the aging potion. Yeah. So did you know even back then when you watched it that you were Fred and George fans? Fan? <laughs> I don't think I did at the time because that with that being my own, I, I didn't really have any favorites because I going Just into the, it like once. 
I went in that film blind and never not seen the pre- previous three films beforehand because it just wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. So this film was what two thousand three, two thousand four. So uh-huh. yeah, so I was in college at that point. That really wasn't my thing then. Like I was more I was embracing my nerdiness a little bit more, but. Like at that point, like I think I, I think I was just too far gone to even even try with Harry Potter at that point. Yeah. Um. There's one quick thing that, um, it's not really. Again, it's not really a big deal, but it's it's also something that I kind of realized very recently, um, is how Harry gets the gillyweed before the the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I know. I remember that from the Spark Notes today about how he gets it from. Dobby in the book, and then yes. Mad Eye steals Neville. it, and then gives it to Dobby, and then Dobby gives it to Harry, whereas Neville gives it to Harry. Yeah, and it's just I I don't know which which one do you prefer? Do you prefer just that? Okay, Neville has this because it sort of makes sense because he's into the plants and and things like that. So does it? I don't know which one do you prefer. I really I really think. Neville giving it to him makes sense because they have established that Neville has a uh, a, a keen eye for herbology. Mm-hmm. But don't they say like Mad Eye influences him, influences uh, Neville to give it to him? So they still they still so they still throw a little Barty slash Mad Eye having an influence on the Gillyweed. Or having influence on Harry throughout the whole, uh, got the uh, whole Triwizard Tournament. So it almost seemed like in the book it seemed more convoluted. Him giving it to Dobby and all that stuff, and in the movie I think it was just really simple. I think he's he's walking somewhere and he's very kind of flustered, and he's just Neville's like talking to him and he's like kind of trying to give him the brush off, and he's like. Something about, well, if you know where to breathe underwater and Neville just spouts out, oh, you could always use gillyweed. So I think it was just kind of a just a random lucky moment in the movie. But I, th- but I thought they I thought they said that I thought Mad Eye said when he's revealing himself to Harry. Well, that sounds awkward and dirty saying that that way uh, when he's uh, <laughs> when he's unfolding his when he's in, unveiling yeah. his master plan. So the two huge monologues in this book slash film. Um <laughs> When Mad Eye is revealing his plans to Harry or what his master plan was all the time, I thought he I thought he might have said that he influenced Neville mm. to tell Harry about the gillyweed instead of him giving it to Dobby. Yeah, that could be. I don't remember for sure. That that could very well be. I think so because didn't at one point like Mad Eye wanting to speak to Neville. Hmm. Maybe Wasn't it one of those moments where it's like, oh, you need can you. Like stay after class because I, I want to talk to you. So I wonder if that had something to do with his influence on Neville and then Neville like giving him the. Yeah, the no, no. Because it's brought to light that he had an influence on Diggory telling Harry about the egg. Yeah. So I mean, I could see it that him having even more that 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 influence. Plus, it makes sense because it's not set up in this film that Dobby works in the kitchen at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. So they trim the fat of Dobby getting a job at Hogwarts. 
So I guess it, it would make sense for them to have, okay, well, it isn't established that Dobby works at Hogwarts, so we need to have Mad-Eye influence somebody else. And we'll, well, Neville's got this knack for herbology, so why not? So, mm-hmm. so I think if, if they're going to skip over stuff like, if they're going to skip over plot points like Dobby not working at Hogwarts, I think it, I think it's a good replacement to have um, Neville being the one that tell him about the Gillyweed, but still being influenced by Mad Eye. So I think it was a good replacement. I think. Mm, I think so too. I think it was. It, it makes sense because he's obviously Neville's into herbology, so he would have that sort of knowledge. And then also then you know maybe possibly having an influence from from Mad Eye. So it really does. I agree, thousand percent. Um, that yeah, it was. Um, you know, definitely, you know, it, it made a lot more sense than having the extra detail of Dobby, for sure. And I think you can't have Dobby. And if you're going to, and I think it helps that they didn't have Winky in the film at all either. Uh, the Crouch's house elf, so, because she's also a house elf at, that works at Hogwarts too now, so. Yeah, her get, and you meet her, her, her at the World Cup too. Yeah, so you don't meet Winky at all in the entire film, so it, you don't get the reveal that she used Harry's wand and all other stuff. So, yeah, so I think if you're gonna take plot points like that, I think you need to have something that would make sense. So Neville telling him about the Gillyweed is a good way to like cover up a lot of that. But I know, like I said. A lot of people don't like this film. A lot of Potter fans don't like this film because so much of the stories left out of it from the book. But I think a patch like that is a good. It, that's a good patch. I think is to have Neville be the one that gave him the gillyweed. Yeah, because you you need at least somebody to do that because you can't just you know I'm I'm really glad that they did do that instead of just sort of him randomly having it and this is what he's gonna use right. That there's a purpose, like he, okay, he gets given it, and you know, and it makes sense who. So it's a it's a reasonable fix for for that. So I, I think it works, and and I mean the the constant book to film thing is a big thing within this franchise, definitely, especially the later films. People get very nitpicky. <laughs> I, I really think it's from here on out is when you start to see really the fat getting trimmed a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, it's still good stories, so, you know, um, yeah. So I, I, don't hate, I, don't, I don't hate the film. I don't love it. It's not my favorite, but I don't hate it like everybody else does. But I, I can see the flaws of the people seeing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, do we have any final thoughts on it? Because I think we've... I feel like we've covered it pretty well, the book and the film. I'd say it's a good transition for the big overall looming threat that J.K. Rowling was starting to build with Voldemort. I think it's a good transition from happy-go-lucky young Harry to discovering who he is as a wizard and as himself to transitioning now. This is becoming a, a life-threatening situation for him. I think, it, I think Goblet of Fire is a good transition in both book and film to what's coming later. Defendo. Sorry about that, nerds, nerdettes, wizards, witches, and muggles. This episode's running a little bit long. Let's face it, we're covering seven books and eight movies, so it's not going to be a quick one. 
uh, we want to make sure we gave this franchise the proper love it deserves. So come back next week while we continue my journey into the wizarding world of Harry Potter. See you next time. The thoughts and opinions expressed by your ambassadors and their guests are theirs and theirs alone. And do not represent the companies they happen to work for. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys.